It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Yeah, Hello, this is Nick Metcalf from the Talking Snooker podcast. And this is Phil Haig from the Talking Snooker podcast. And this is Dave Hendon from the Snooker Scene podcast. And a very good day to you for this Christmas special. We've come together in the spirit of Val Dunican. It's two podcasts for the price of one here. Uh, we are delighted to say that Dave from the magnificent Snooker Scene podcast has joined Phil and myself, we are most honoured, Dave, and we're gathering here, typical of the game, very soon after yet another great story. Mark Selby winning the English Open. What a story, because it started the year, didn't it, with Mark sort of bearing his soul. We know about the difficulties he's had. But to end it in this fashion, I mean, just a, you know, a great story any time of year. But at Christmas, how special was that? Very special. Firstly, it's nice to be back uh, for our second Christmas special. Um, hopefully, it won't be as long as last year's. <laughs> I've got, I've got, I've got wrapping presents to do later. Um, I'm hoping to get that done before Christmas itself. But uh, yes, uh, it, yes, you're right. I mean, the Selby, uh, the Selby story, full stop, has been incredible. Actually, if you go from his childhood and where he came from to, to what he's achieved, um, it was kind of, in a way, he was sort of the last player you would ever think would take a break from snooker, which he sort of did last season, really. He ducked out of a couple of tournaments and obviously was working on sort of off-table things, which he spoke about. Um, so it was great to see him back, join snooker again. And obviously, you know, he's just a great player. And yeah, it, it, it was, there was a wonderful circularity, right, to the fact that the year ended with him winning the tournament. And, you know, we saw what it meant to him and his family and uh, just uh, very heartwarming. And another example of, and this is true of, of, of all sports, I know, but certainly snooker just has the the ability to sort of provide these stories. We've seen so many this year, personal stories, sort of almost redemptive stories in some way. And yeah, it was just a, a lovely kind of lovely kind of way to round off round off twenty twenty two of them. Yeah, definitely. And uh, you couldn't help but be moved by seeing that last night on uh, Sunday night. We're recording this Monday morning um, of Mark uh, in tears and how much it meant to him and. What a sort of uh, 
recovery he's made because yeah he was in a real bad place and uh it's sort of it was almost pain, more painful to hear him mention how long he'd been struggling before he said anything about it which you know we knew it didn't just come out of nowhere in january but he was suffering in silence for some time and uh it's just incredible what he was achieving when he was going through that you know winning world titles and winning all sorts being world number one um takes some doing uh without having to deal with that kind of thing so yeah uh not everyone's a Mark Selby fan. I think that's fair to say, but even the hardest sort of Ronnie, Ronnie uh, uh, lovers who uh, might decry Mark occasionally could not help but be very pleased from that. I don't think you'd really have to be a mean spirited person to to feel anything but uh, great joy for him there. Oh, oh definitely. You know, two things come to mind actually for me. First of all, how much of a classic tournament moment was Sean Murphy missing that black? I mean, Mark Selby was almost getting his cue out to put away in his case. He'd gone, really. And Sean actually played marvellously in that match. You know, it it looked a bit like the old Murphy. He had that demeanour about him. I'm sure he'll go on now and and do very well in the tournaments to come. But the Bis Black sort of came out of nothing. And it looked like for all money, Selby was out. But he got through, won the tournament. And, you know, that Murphy moment for me might not just be significant for this tournament, but actually weeks and months into the future, there's just something about that was just a great moment. Also, something else Dave said there about this sport giving drama. I think I said it last year, not like, not like me to repeat stuff, as you know, Phil, but I, I, I'll make a, a, a rare example of doing that by saying, I don't think we get enough credit, certainly from the outside, and maybe don't make enough on the inside of how much drama this sport produces. Now, I know we follow a lot of sports, but I was thinking this in the build-up to recording. It, this is a, a special time of year for racing fans, jump racing, big races most weekends. But you can bet your bottom dollar, if you get an absolute thriller, you probably won't get one for another five, six weeks. Or maybe if you get a special week in January or special race, you might not get another one until Cheltenham in, in the early spring. But in this sport, in snooker, you know, we just have story after story that's great. And you can only wait a couple of weeks. The next one comes along. Now, sometimes, and I know that word bubble used quite often, Phil, you never know how much we're in that, do you? And how much, you know, how much is actually reaching across the boundaries. However, I have to say, and just looking through this year, thinking about Robert Milkins, I mean, Dave mentioned redemptive. What about that? That You know, the situation he had in Turkey, then to win a tournament. You know, Joe Perry winning a big tournament. He, these are marvellous stories. Ryan Day at the British Open and, we have to say, Phil, we're blessed, aren't we? We're blessed as fans, as pundits, as lovers of this game. Oh, definitely, yeah. I mean, things things feel a lot longer ago than the start of this year when I was looking back at what's been going on in 2022 because there's been an awful lot packed in. And, yeah, we, I mean, there's some criticism of the tour not being quite as busy as it has been over recent years, but they still turn out a lot of matches. We've watched an awful lot of snooker, haven't we? And there's been an awful lot of good stuff, and you're right, Um you know, Gary Wilson even winning in Scotland seems a while ago now already because we've seen so much since then. Um, but yeah, we're not sure of drama. You know, ne- never does a tournament go by and you just say, can't really remember what happened in that. <laughs> you know, there's always there's always plenty to talk about. And yeah, maybe, yeah, I don't know. Maybe we always think it doesn't get enough coverage, don't we, outside of the people who cover it regularly. Um, and we'd love to see it more because it's it's hard to imagine, isn't it, when we when we watch really dramatic snooker matches that other people couldn't find this quite as exciting as we do. I suppose some people don't, but maybe they haven't seen it enough. I guess that's our job to 
try and get it get it seen by more people. Well, one person who didn't see it was the guy who was thrown out, of course, um, <laughs> with the with the with the strangest sort of heckle. Well, not even a heckle. It's just catch out and come on, Barry. I mean, I, I wonder if he felt what well, the first time he did it and got no reaction from anyone other than just disapproval. He thought, "I'm onto something here. This yeah. is this is gold. This is gold." <laughs> and then Tati, Tatiana, I mean, Wollaston is the loveliest woman in the world. You know, she you could see she was starting to bristle after the second one. And I, al- I almost expected to, to the three, like the three misses, the warning. Okay, you <laughs> yeah. do that again. Yeah, you're gone. But but he he he, he persisted. Uh, he, you know, fair enough. He, he he's gonna hammer it home. And um, there was them sort of bustled out. And, of course, that's what, like Neil Fold said, like it would have been great if, if Luke had made that one for yeah. seven, not, not just for him, but just so the bloke couldn't see it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it was intentional because they just showed sort of a wide shot. And I don't know if they meant to just get the bottom of the screen of him being hurled out. But it was, it was very funny because he was sort of stumbling off with his pint just sloshing everywhere and just like, couldn't be more cliched of an idiot. So you don't want <laughs> doing that. But yeah, when uh, it was a good four or five times, wasn't it? And uh, when the players are sort of staring directly at you, I mean, you've really got to take the hint by that point. I think. Well, I heard I heard one person in the crowd as he was being bundled out shout, "Bye, Barry." Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, this is what passes for crowd trouble at snooker. I mean, if that's the worst we have, and the old sweet paper r- rustling, then you know. But on the Sean Murphy Miss Black, I, I blame myself for that. Because I was commentating, and it was by this point it was twenty to midnight, right? Which is, which is late enough, really. And as he he potted the previous red, so he's perfect on the black. He needs the black. I think Selby can tie, so obviously the next red is is match over. And so just before he played the black, I put my notepad in my bag, basically ready to make a quick getaway <laughs> at the end of the match. And of course, you know the the sods law of snooker gods and all that. You know, he, he misses it, and then we're still there 40 minutes later. Um, I mean, Sean probably is partly to blame as well, in fairness. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, it's tempting, it's tempting fate. If you ever do anything like that, if you ever turn to the co-commentator and say, like, say it's gone 2-0 in half an hour, if you say, well, this, you know, we'll be, we're out of here, you know, by 8 o'clock, it never happens. <laughs> we never learn either. We always do it. But anyway, yeah. But it was, it, you're right, Nick, to say it wasn't only significant uh, for this tournament, but going forward now, you know, for Mark, you know, the, the, going into the Masters. I mean, the Masters was the tournament where it all came out, you know, that last, last season. Um, you could see him having a great second half of the year. And obviously, you know, this, who would you, who would, who would you bet a, a more against uh, the Crucible or bet more on the Crucible than Mark Stelby? You know, if he turns up there feeling good this year, then he's probably favourite, actually. Yeah, <laughs> I, I totally agree with that. Part of me was thinking last night, actually, I know I mustn't get carried away with, with talking Sheffield because that, that's the, a trap that I think I certainly and we sometimes fall into. There's so much snooker still to be played and let, let's focus on that, on those great tournaments as well. But of course, there's something so enormously special about Sheffield that's never far from our mind. We're near Christmas now, so what, about four months away? I thought exactly the same thing. Maybe, maybe I didn't go as far as thinking Selby's the favourite, but... I'm already thinking what a what a front runner, what what you know, what a leading contender he'll be for that tournament. You know, even if he doesn't win another one between now and then, the fact he's done that, I expect him to challenge now. And actually, there was a bit of uh, not a difference of opinion. That's too strong. But Neil Foles was saying last night that Jimmy had been saying for ages that Selby's getting better and better, and Neil didn't quite see. It. I had to say, I think we did see it, Phil, didn't we? Because 
he hasn't been getting over the line, but to me, for about a month or two now, he's slowly but slowly but surely getting there. And it just maybe needed that Murphy moment. I have to say, Dave, I'm taking a little bit of a blame myself because I did start the tweet by saying whether he wins or loses tonight. However, I did also say that Sean looks like his old self here. He's got his demeanour back. He's looking great. And honestly, I think it might have been, I can't remember the name. He needed one frame at that stage, I think. Then came that miss. So I felt quite guilty myself. But listen, <laughs> that's the nature of what these rolling news media outlets we have now that, you know, you, <laughs> things change in sport. That's the beauty of it. But, um, of course, Dave, Phil and I don't allow anybody that doesn't believe in the snooker gods to tune, to tune into our podcast. We say you're not, you're not allowed. We're quite liberal. We say anyone that doesn't believe in the snooker gods, you can't tune in. Are you as strong as that with yours? Uh, not, not quite, no. Uh, that's, <laughs> that's quite Here's the, the thing about the snooker gods. It's like any god, actually. If you believe in them, then they exist, okay? So, I mean, in a rational sense, there's not a room full of people controlling what happens. But in your mind, if you believe, okay, I've missed that, I'm going to be... So if something goes wrong the next frame, it's not because you just made a mistake, it's because I'm being punished for what I did in a former life, or in this case, a former frame. Um, and snooker players do believe it. Ronnie O'Sullivan will tell you, they exist. Mm. They, they believe in them, because it always seems to happen that if you make an unforced error, something will then go wrong for you. I mean, Judd Trump at the moment is talking about how unlucky he is. Now, you can't track luck. You know, you can't really weigh it. But in his mind, he's decided, I'm not getting the running. He's also, by the way, not winning tournaments. And obviously the two go together. But he's decided <laughs> that there's this sort of, you know, all cloud over him or something. The snooker gods, for some reason, are out to get him. Um, and players believe it, absolutely. They do. I guess it just depends how, how you look at it from that belief. Because if you just think, I'm just being unlucky, but I'm playing great, so that's a positive and the luck will turn. Or you think, oh, there's nothing going right. I just can't win a match. You know, either way, as long as you spin it your own way, uh, you can believe what you want, I guess. So that's, that's good. Um, I think what you said, Nick, uh, is right. I think just the results, Mark's results were getting better. I mean, he's been to three quarterfinals this season and he wasn't even getting that far uh, last season, really, before his break. Um, so I, I think there were signs, but he, he made a really good point a couple of times this week and after the final that people of his sort of standing in the game, quarterfinals don't mean loads to them in terms of getting your confidence back and feeling good again. And maybe people don't want to say that because it sounds a little bit arrogant, but it's true. Like if you're so used to winning loads of tournaments and the biggest tournaments, you know, runs to the last eight, you know, it's better than not that far, obviously, but it's not going to be uh, making you feel at your, at your best again. Um, but this could do. And yeah, I agree that um, while people weren't really, well, maybe they were, I don't know, but I certainly wasn't expecting him to be winning tournaments regularly before now. Suddenly you are again, and definitely in Sheffield, of course, because even last year when he turned up having had a break, um, I didn't really give him much of a chance. And of course he went out in the second round, but I thought he played pretty well. Uh, that game against Yam was uh, really good, sort of remembered more of the bloody pigeon, but <laughs> it was actually a really good game. And I thought Mark <laughs> himself really well, considering he'd not been playing through what and having been what he was going through. Um, so, yeah, it's all good signs, uh, all good signs to Selby going forward from here, I think. Just on the snooker gods, just a final point on that. 
one nickname in snooker that is actually, I think, an advantage is Ballrun, Stuart Ballrun Bingham. Because the minute he, everyone gets luck here and there. But if Stuart gets a bit of luck, particularly early in a match, a lot of the opponents say, oh, we go again. Stuart, look, he's lucky. He's just lucky. He's no luckier than anyone else, but he's got <laughs> this expectation almost that the balls are going to run for him, you know. And it's, it's actually the only nickname that actually is actually some sort of advantage, you know. The ace in the pack doesn't, doesn't sort of, that doesn't really mean anything, does it? Even the rocket, you know. But ball run, it's telling everyone, I'm going to be lucky. Now, if you actually watched his whole season, there's plenty of times he's had bad luck, but people sort of almost ignore that. Mm. Oh, ball run, his flute's another one, you know, because that's what he's supposed to do. So the snooker gods, you know, they're, they're a fickle lot. Yeah. He really does lead into it as well, though. He's happy to sort of... Because oh, yeah, some, some people could yeah. sort of take offense from that a bit, just no, like, no. well, I'm not lucky, I'm a great player. But he's like, yeah. oh, fine, I am. Deal yeah. with it. Yeah, yeah, no, it's an advantage, definitely. In some way, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I'll tell you what a lot of them will say, and I've, certainly the very, very top ones. I think Ronnie may have even said it in that recent Eurosport documentary. Uh, maybe this is my final word of the snooker gods for now. <laughs> Ronnie and others of that top ilk will say, if you don't play the right shot, the snooker gods will punish you. I've heard lots of the time. I think I've heard John Higgins say that as well. You know, certainly Ronnie says it. And I say, you've got to play the right shot. The, the gods will punish you. And I, I sort of love that idea. Well, of course, we are thinking, aren't we, about um, the year in general, which is natural when, uh, around Christmas time. I know we, we got our review of the, uh, the year coming up next week, Phil, on, on the Talk is Snooker podcast. But obviously, we're going to reflect on that some as well here. And I always think the Masters is kind of a funny thing at the very end of the year because it happened so long ago. I mean, heavens above, you know, it just feels like (laughs) it's a funny thing to look back on. But, of course, it was absolutely brilliant, wasn't it? I mean, Dave, you'd have the pleasure of, you know, commentating on the thing. I mean, nights like the Higgins-Williams, they don't come around every day or every week. That was just mind-blowing. And the atmosphere was great. And I guess the good thing about it being so long ago is we've got another one coming up. What a treat to look forward to. And they've nailed that venue, haven't they? They've nailed it. It's special. And we can't wait for it again. Well, also, yeah, absolutely. And I think that actually the fact that it's, it launches the year is really good. You know, you've had Christmas, you've had a bit of time off. You really hit the ground running with the Masters. It's it's a tournament that's sort of, obviously it's always been prestigious, but it has changed a little bit over the years. Um, it, it's now very much the best players, you know, in the old ranking system when the rankings were set for the whole season, you'd come around to the Masters and there'd be people who hadn't won a match for a couple of months maybe and, and kind of weren't really one of the best top 16 players in the world. I don't really think you can say that now. Um, it's the old cliche, you know, and, and I'll be rolling out again in January, every match of final and all that. The venue, I've heard actually a few spectators say it's not actually the best venue as an experience to go to. The seats aren't always great. And, you know, it's hard to get to and all the rest of it. But as a TV spectacle, it looks fantastic. Um, and I think the fact that obviously with COVID, you know, it hadn't been there and, and all the rest of it, people kind of made up for that this year. Uh, yeah, it was a it was an absolute triumph of, of an event. The only thing um, that could have been improved is a better final, but you can't, you know, you can't just click your fingers and expect that to happen. Um, the semi-finals were both classics. Obviously, Robertson, Williams, Hawkins and Trump. Um, yeah, it was a fantastic week. And it, it's one of those events that definitely put Snooker on the map. No two ways about it. People notice it. Um, and, yeah, it, it then establishes. I always think when the Masters is done, then you're in the sort of run into the Crucible. 
there's big tournaments in between, but that sort of sort of fires the shot, the starting gun, if you like, on the sort of you know the lead into Sheffield. So yeah, it's 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 um, but that slot is brilliant, I think actually, just that January, you know, let's let's get snooker going again, sort of thing. Yeah, I think what I I loved most about it, or certainly up there, was how affected the players were by how great the atmosphere was and even sort of the gr- most grizzled of veterans Williams and Higgins playing that match which you know y- you had to be affected by but even they were sort of like giddy school kids uh, going out there with those rece- that reception they got the standing ovation walking in and out um, you know Higgins lost that match it could have been a painful loss but he was sort of just like that was brilliant <laughs> which is amazing to see and uh, you know not everyone would have liked it but when Judd Trump he's not always the most sort of gregarious character really but he was moved to the come on baby, yeah. uh, such was uh, such was the experience of. I think that was after he beat Allen in the first round, maybe, uh, which was a really good game. Um, but yeah, it's, it had such an impact on the players, and I think that's why they get a bit down, and you feel you hear them moaning a lot about other tournaments, which are just sort of more the the day to day tournaments on the tour. But it was nice to see them enjoying how special that was, and it and it really was. It was uh, it was amazing to watch. Um, but I suppose the master. I thought the Masters was a good example of how you can't please everyone all the time. Obviously, what you mentioned, Dave, about the venue, and uh, they're all they're all sort of valid points from people who've been there. And also, while the atmosphere, people like Mark Williams again were saying it's one of the best, if not the best, he's ever played in. You hear people saying, "Oh, it was a bit too rowdy. I didn't like some of the shouting out and stuff." So, and you know, that's their opinion. There's not a right or wrong on that. But some people are saying it wasn't the best tournaments ever. Some people thought it was a bit much. So you can't please everyone all the time, can you? I don't see, though, if you're a snooker fan, I don't see how you couldn't think that was a great week. I mean, the standard of play, you know, because it's the best in the world and as a spectacle. I think if you, if you, if you come away with that not, not liking it, then, you know, it's almost like you're looking for things to complain about because yeah. it, it's a great, you know, there was so much in it that was enjoyable. Um, and I'm sure it'll be the same again, you know, next month when it's on again. Yeah, I totally agree with that. All those points. I think there is nuance here, actually, though. Yes, nobody could say it wasn't a great week, I would have thought, for snooker. It was absolutely marvellous. But there were there were also one or two of those sessions. I think it might have been the Friday night. I think Jan Mahas was the referee. I did think it went too far, actually, if I'm really honest. There, there was well, nothing, like it, nothing like it used to be. I mean, Wembley Conference Centre, you know, that was... I mean, I remember there was one year there, Hendry, I think he got beat by, I'm going to say, Ken... And on Friday night at Wembley, and he he got such abuse from the crowd that he actually went to the because it was run independently then on World Snooker. It was run by Benson Hedges, employed their own company to run it, it was completely independent from World Snooker. And he went to their office and said, "I'm never playing in the Masters again." Now, of course, he, this is Henry won it how many times he won it by then six. He said that was absolutely disgraceful experience, and it was by the way, it was terrible. Now, what we have this year, okay, it might not be to everyone's taste, but it was nothing like that. Absolutely nothing like it. I mean, in, in the old Wembley days and Wembley Arena, remember the final with Ding and O'Sullivan? Ding got some terrible abuse there. Mm. Um, so I suppose it's, yeah, it, it's levels. I mean, you know, we, we, we want propriety. I don't disagree with that. But I think, you know, a little bit of shouting out's okay. I don't think, I don't think it's going to, you know, I don't think it's going to sort of put, put the game into disrepute, really. No, no, that's a fair point. And I, listen, I, th- I would say it's only, it was only one or two sessions out of, Gone, however many there are at the Masters, well, I thought it might have strayed over. But listen, God, I mean, the atmosphere. I mean, I was just there live myself for the final night. And as you say, Dave, 
it was a bit of an anti-climax, wasn't it? But it was so strong. And I've heard you say this many times today, great wisdom, that, of course, if the final is very good, we've seen this at the Crucible sometimes, people can forget. It, it can be almost like a almost veering towards, you know, really get an ordinary world championship. But you can get a world championship that's not at the top level in terms of drama and theatre. Get a great final. That's forgotten. This is kind of the opposite. We didn't have a good final, but it didn't matter because it was such a great tournament. The the greatness was sealed, if you like, Dave, before the final. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the thing about the Masters is, you know, you can see the sheer effort that he's put into promoting it, you know, you've got the sort of the player icons, the big screens. You can do that in a big arena, of course, but also a lot of money is spent on it um, because it's seen quite rightly as one of the flagship sort of, you know, showcases for the sport. Um, and you've got all the big names in it. And, you know, I spoke to one player who said they don't consider it a major because it's not a ranking event, which I don't really see personally because I think prestige comes from, well, the, the, the prize fund for one, the history, you know, the role of honour and, and so on. Um, and also anyone can get in it. You've got to get in the top 16. So in a way there is a qualifying sort of system to get in it. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think, I think it, it's, I th- it has changed. It, it never used to be quite as big as it is now um, because it's outlasted a lot of the tournaments it sort of grew up with, if you like, in the eighties, a lot of those have gone now. So it's sort of survived and it's a great, um, yeah, it's a great, like I say, it's a great way to sort of launch the year. Um, and Pete also, it was interesting, I can't speak for Mark Selby, obviously, but I think the fact that he got knocked out of that event was a sort of trigger for actually facing up to these issues that he's now faced up to. The fact that he was so miserable there and mm. so heavily beaten there, if that had been the Welsh Open or something or, or not any any other tournament, maybe that it wouldn't have sparked this sort of, you know, self-realisation almost. So, that that may be, you know, is significant as well. I don't know. Yeah, that makes sense. I remember that was because I was just there on the semi-final day and that was the morning Mark made his announcement on social media and then that went on to have those two classic games. So it really was uh, uh, many, many hours of drama and unexpected drama from Mark and then incredible drama on the on the table. So, yeah, it was just a remarkable day. And, uh, yeah, he, that, I mean, that was the quarterfinal. I sort of forgotten that. He'd already won a match. Um, so that goes back to what I was saying before about how he was still managing to perform at all, winning matches against other top 16 players at the Masters. Um, what he was going through, just incredible stuff. But yeah, I think uh, to start the year in that fashion, because we've got a break and it feels like a long break over Christmas after this spell of the year when it's just back to back to back, uh, to come back with that, I think that's what people were sort of um, saying it could be better at the start of the season with more of a curtain raiser for the season uh, rather than going in with a championship league not the masters then but i mean just something there that is is a bit more wow the season's starting but you can't argue with that with the start of the year it's the best thing to start the year off after a christmas break just bosh we're back uh and just guaranteed entertainment yeah very much so and uh it, it is a great way to start it and then of course we moved on to you know some some more great tournaments i love that early early period of the year and uh, Shouting Tom was victorious in Germany. Superb victory for Joe Perry in Wales. I know we've said it before, Phil, and I think you're the same day. Welsh Open such a special tournament. There's just something about it. It has so much history now. I mean, listen, Northern Ireland, as I said before, I think it's stolen a march on the English and 
and Scottish Open just by having a great venue and you know really building up what's happening there in Belfast. However, the Welsh show is special. But Robert Milkins, I mean, we, I know we all, all talked about it at the time, Phil. But how much of a great narrative was that? You know what happened to him in Turkey, which was very unfortunate. You know, embarrassing incident for Robert, of course. Um, you know, being very drunk, making a scene. To be fair, he was very contrite, very apologetic. Then to go and win in Gibraltar, I mean, it wrote itself, didn't it? You, you just had to go in there sort of blindfolded. You got your story, Phil. What marvellous stuff, wasn't it? Well, yeah, I mean, people often say at the end of sort of football matches, like, oh, you couldn't write it when someone scores a last-minute winner. It's like, well, that's exactly what you would write, really. Mm-hmm. And I suppose <laughs> you could say that for this one, you know, that sounds like a film story, doesn't it? But certainly no one ever would have predicted what happened there. Um to you know the the low point for him and then for what was it a few weeks later a couple of weeks later to win his first ever tournament um absolutely incredible stuff and uh he's a very well liked person it seems on tour um whenever i spoke to him he's been very uh engaging enjoyed doing it and uh you know i spoke to him after gibraltar and he had it was quite a sad story really about what he's gone through over his life and you couldn't help feeling very pleased for him and you know, well, I'm not going to say we've all been there, but certainly me and some people I know have certainly been where he's been, where you've had a few too many drinks and made made a fool of yourself a little bit where you shouldn't have done. Uh, you know, it happens. And uh, it, But for most people, it doesn't become a national news story. So I did feel very badly for him. Um, he certainly didn't mean any harm by it. It was just a very unfortunate incident. And to get the ultimate redemption story soon after and to help pay that fine um, was uh, was very good for him. Dave, what did you make of that? That was just, um, I mean, you, oh, yeah. you was just marvellous, wasn't it? Well, I, I think, I mean, I said actually on the, the the final last night that, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about these guys as players and we talk about their cue actions and we talk about their form and whatever. Maybe we don't spend enough time talking about those people. And obviously, you know, everyone's got issues in the background and sometimes they're, you know, they're, 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 they're quite sort of upsetting. And, and in his case... I think he would tell you that, you know, he sort of used drink a little bit to mask them. Um, what happened in Turkey, you know, he was out of order and I think he was right that he was disciplined for it. But he was, as Phil said, he was contrite. He didn't put up any excuses. Instead, I was I was in the wrong. I'm sorry. And he apologised personally to the, the, the Turkish, you know, promoters. And then, yeah, to bounce back. Um, the thing about that, forget about Turkey. In terms of his season, he'd only won three matches all season. You know, and by the way, Gibraltar is in what March, so it's a lot of snooker he's played. It looked like he, he was sort of tumbling down the rankings and possibly off the tour. So it was an extraordinary turnaround. It made no sense really in terms of the form book, but that's kind of been the pattern of the whole year, really. Just look at some of the people who've been coming along and winning. It, it just proved that you know if you can put it together and maybe get that little bit of luck you need here and there as well, and maybe there's a sort of if you believe again in the snooker gods, maybe they're sort of on his side that, that week, whatever. Brilliant. He's been around a long time. You know, he's always been a good player, solid kind of snooker person. You know, he's just a proper, no airs and graces, loves the game, will play it for as long as he, he can. Um, and yeah, everyone was happy to see him, you know, t- to see that moment because he kind of, he'd, he'd done the years, he played in everything. And yeah, and after Turkey as well, you know, like Phil says, you know, we're not, none of, I mean, by the way, I should say on, on the subject of drink, I'm not drinking this year. A lot of people seem interested in, in whether I would be um, because it's lunchtime. And, you know, there are some, <laughs> there are some, if I drank at lunchtime at my age, I'd be asleep by two o'clock. So, 
Uh, I'm not drinking, uh, just to make that clear. Maybe people prefer I was. I don't know. But, um, <laughs> but anyway, but anyway, uh, yeah, well done. Yeah, well done to the milkman, in short. Yeah, brilliant. Brilliant. It was all within, I think, a month, almost exactly a month's period, where we had Fan winning the European, Perry winning the Welsh, and Milkins winning Gibraltar. And it just seems like, what is the point of even trying to predict anything anymore? It's just, it's just chaos now. Like you can't. And then it sort of restored balance as we as we went on. But that month was uh, madness, really, wasn't it? It was. I mean, I think, you know, in as much as you can explain it, the only thing I would say is, obviously, Selby, by that point, had sort of wasn't really playing almost. He didn't wasn't mm. really cited. Judd Trump had kind of gone off the boil. So you've got two big hitters not quite performing. Ronnie, sort of, we'll talk about him, I'm sure, in due course. He actually doesn't really come good in those tournaments anymore. Mm. Um, I mean, I, I was looking at, we, we'll talk about Ronnie, I'm sure, in depth, but the two world titles that he won, 2020 and 2022. Now, obviously, you know, I'm not in any way disparaging winning those. You know, that, that's what you're remembered for. But if you look at in between, so it's two years there, in between, he played 29 tournaments, O'Sullivan, and won, won one of them. But that was the World Grand Prix last season. So actually, yeah, he was coming good in the in the one one that really matters. But he wasn't coming good week in week out. Um, so again, that's another big hitter who wasn't winning tournaments. Neil Robertson was. Neil Robertson was winning tournaments, but there was maybe room for other people then to, you know, Mark Allen was hadn't quite hit form like the way he has this season. So the top players, Kyron and these people, they weren't quite doing it and. So there was there was an opportunity maybe for someone to come through, but even so, you would never have predicted. I don't think you would have predicted one of those people to work. <laughs> Certainly not all three. No chance. <laughs> no. What, 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 uh, one thing that sort of strikes me, and you're right about Ronnie, he's really won it when it matters with those yeah. 2020, 2022 victories. Selby's not dissimilar, and it strikes me that those kind of players, the absolute elite, it almost doesn't matter that much what they do outside the Crucible to some extent. We know Ronnie lost, I mean, Ronnie got to a lot of finals, to be fair. He lost them all um, that season. But but wouldn't you rather be that than like a Robertson, who's an unbelievable player, that, that does regularly put more tournaments? I could be reaching too much here. But you know what I'm getting at. He puts a lot of tournaments on the board, but doesn't do it in the Crucible. Yeah, well, that's the opposite, yeah. That, and that's and I know you had him on um another very long interview I'm, which I'm surprised it's finished it's only just finished <laughs> <laughs> um, and it, it's you know it, it's been discussed a lot and, and, and may well be again um, you know in next year's World Championship but clearly he is good enough to win that tournament we know he has won it we should remember that he has won it and that's an amazing achievement but he's good enough to win it again I think pound for pound you could argue he's actually the best player in the game when you watch him play his Q action is probably the best He's got the bottle. He's that heavy scorer. He's got everything. And he played brilliantly last week. And, and Selby had to play really well to beat him. Um, he's decided almost himself he's got a problem with the Crucible, which maybe, if you looked at some of his performances there the last few years in early rounds, he's played great at times. Um, I know this thing about walking into the shot and all that has been discussed ad nauseum, but clearly he's got to get over that. <laughs> he's got to go over that. And if he does, and I get the feeling, I do think he will, actually. I do think... If he gets through to that one table, he will win it, I think. I think that's what I would say. So it's all about getting through. Usually the quarter, I know it was the second round this year, although Jack Lozowski played brilliantly in that match. Um, and let's not forget Neil at a maximum. So you know, he wasn't off, off form. But if he, if he can get through, 
I think he will win it again. But it is kind of odd, like you say, Nick, that he's you can guarantee he will come good probably three or four times a year. You know, he's the most consistent winner, really. If you look at his career since 2006, he's won a tournament every year of some sort. But people will always say, but hang on, what about it? That's, that's the power of the World Championship. It does dwarf everything. And I guess, ultimately, you would rather be maybe a four-times world champion than have won 25 tournaments that are hard to win and big tournaments, but not. they would never be of that level. He um, Maybe he's sort of... Because he's been very good this so far this season. I think he's been to four semi-finals. Um, and I wouldn't say this about any other player, but he thinks so much about snooker and everything. Maybe there's part of him that's sort of easing off already so far this season to come good later maybe it's probably rubbish that but um he does overthink everything I think and I think that has cost him in Sheffield a bit um I don't know if he's just saying things for our benefit sometimes about the space and the the venue and everything but um something has played on his mind because his record is not as good as it should be there and it's certainly not because he's not good enough at snooker um so I think it is uh something in his head um but yeah I'd it's sort of one of those things where you're talking about it as it's happening. You know, we're talking about as a, as a one-time world champion, which he is. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised if he wins it three or four times before the end of his career. And then, you know, this all this chat that we do all the time is redundant. Um, but yeah, he, he sort of knows that he's got to be judged on it. He's aware of it. Um, and I think it just sort of plays on his mind too much. I don't think he goes into any of the tournaments that he wins regularly thinking about things as much as he does when he goes to Sheffield. And that's clearly, well, I think that's clearly what's, uh, what's hampered him because yeah, as we've said, the problems that he's, he's identified as problems, they're hard to really claim are problems because as Dave just said, he plays great there. Um, so it, I think it's all in his mind really, but uh, I'm, I'm confident he'll get there. He is always, every year that goes past, you're running out of years, aren't you? But um, he's still got plenty of time. Well, I'm confident we're pretty good judges on the game, but I would say Joe Perry's a better judge and certainly a better judge than Neil Robertson. Now, when he was on the podcast with us, Phil, I honestly can't remember now if he used the word rubbish or nonsense, but obviously very similar <laughs> words. And I think it was rubbish. He said, nearly talking rubbish. You, you don't have a problem. You, you win matches there. You know, and I think Joe was suggesting that, you know, he could maybe, maybe he's already doing it, Phil, helping Neil, but probably has as Joe's, playing wise now and may help him more specifically with Sheffield in mind, being part of his team, helping him over the line. Because I think more than anything else, the word that comes to my mind is it it will be a shame, not a desperate shame. Neil said to me himself, goodness, you know, I don't know how much this is fighting talk or not from him, but he said to me in interviews when we chatted on the phone, if if the worst thing that ever happens to me is I've only won one world title, then, you know, it's it's been a pretty good career. And amen. And as Dave rightly said, he's won it. Winning it once is marvellous, let's be clear. But I think it will be a shame because it's just not reflective. I remember Hector Nunn, our friend, friend of the podcast, saying in a, a, a video chat just before the last World Championship, I think, and he just simply said, it feels light. It just does. It just feels light for him. One is just not enough for someone of that quality. But change subject a bit. I know Dave's not drinking, but... Just say I haven't. Not I haven't, yet. Not that might change. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't haven't had a, a, a just to say that I am not drinking. Uh, I have not drunk for nearly fourteen years. But I do have, and I'm holding it up here. If they can see it, 
okay. a couple of mince pies. So I'm going to get not as easy with, with food than drinks. So I have to wait for you to talk. So make sure your next answer is quite long, please. Um, and uh, so I'll be having that. Phil, did, you were telling us that you're, you're, you're mulling some wine. Is that correct? I'm, I pre-mulled my wine, yes. And I'm just <laughs> sipping on a nice mulled wine. I mull everything at this time of the year. Mull cider, whatever I can get my hands on. Mull lager, whatever. But yeah, no. um, yeah, I've had a, one, one uh, lunchtime wine of the Christmas special. But that'll be it because I've got to work later. Uh, but yeah, getting in the festive spirit, of course. Can I ask you a question, Phil? Because I listen, obviously, to your podcast religiously. Who doesn't? But Nick, uh, Nick is a great one for the references that basically exclude anyone under fifty. So when he says Val Dunican, do you, have you any idea who that is? No, I, I, I nod along and I go with it, and I, I'm a hundred percent. My confidence in Nick is uh, just bulletproof. So it'll it'll make sense whatever he's saying, but uh, no, I don't. I don't know what that. I don't know what that is. Well. Well, Val Dunican, there's, there's two things. Well, there's three things I'll say about Val Dunican. Okay, one, I'll say who it is. He was an old sort of Irish entertainer, um, very sort of cosy, I think, with the word, you know, singer, crooner, and he used to have a, a Christmas special <laughs> Christmas special on the BBC. <laughs> the, sec- the second thing I'd say about him is that Christmas special uh, in 1986 was repeated on BBC Four a few years ago. Dennis Taylor was on it. And this is how big Snooker was then. He was on the... Val Dunican Christmas special. and But because they repeated it, he actually got a residual. He got 37 quid, he told me. 37 quid all these years later. I don't, I don't know what he spent it on. More than we're getting for this, by the way. Um, but the third thing I would say about Val Dunican, well, the last words I heard as I left the Christmas party this year, from Nick, obviously. No one else was going to say it. Um, basically, setting this up. Um, <laughs> and he just as I left... Christmas party, not the Christmas party, the, the World Championship party at the, uh, at the after the Christmas ball. The last words I heard ringing in my ears were Val Dunica, which is quite a way to end 17 days of snooker. Um, and the, the thing about that party is, it's uh, if people have not been there, it ain't the Met Gala. It's not the most exclusive... <laughs> <laughs> it's not the most exclusive gathering. Every year I've been, and I've been many years now, well, over 20, actually, 25, I suppose, you always come away wondering who the hell all the other people were there. Um, it's, it's a gathering of people you haven't seen the whole tournament. I'm sure they're all they're all working hard somewhere. I, I get the feelings a lot of sort of guests and sponsored guests and so on. Um, but the last words I heard were, and the other thing about that party. Now we're just chatting about about nonsense. There were times when I was a lot younger where I would I would be there all night, literally till the lights come on. This year I had to sit down at one point. <laughs> I, was, I, I was talking to. I think I was talking to Neil Folds, and I actually we sat down on a bench like a couple of old men, um, as sort of the younger people, you know, congered and enjoyed themselves. And I went to bed quite early. But yeah, the last words, Val Dunican. Have you got anything to add on Val Dunican, Nick? Or have we, have we covered that? Do you think? I went with my parents to see Val celebrate sixty years in show business at the London wow. Palladium in the autumn of 07. It was it was right. the, it was the same night as the Rugby World Cup quarterfinal. I, I always have a thing where I link those things. I think it was. Mm. Scotland Argentina game, and I just I thought, was it fifty or sixty? You're just looking it up now, and actually, well, there's one or there's one or two people in that were on the the cast that maybe I won't mention for for other reasons. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, there was a heavy police presence that night. Yeah. <laughs> Enough said, bloody hell! But 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 yes, indeed, I did go and see that, and uh, well, cosy is the word. I mean, you made you, you made me laugh at crooner. I mean, mm. there were. If you think about the word edge or edgy, 
Val Dunigan was as far away from edgy as any entertainer possibly ever has been. But he was a mainstay, not just a mainstay of television, but let's just clarify, he was a mainstay of Christmas. Val Mm -hmm. Dunigan's Christmas show was a staple on British television for, well, decades. So, yes, I do remember. It wasn't the last words, Dave, but it's certainly the last sentence began with that. It was in the spirit of Val Dunigan shall we do a Christmas show again? Which was great. That party, you know, I mean, it's always barking mad, but I seem to remember me me, me and you, Phil, I say having a very drunken, not in my case, but I, I was quite high on all the sweets that were going around, though, to be fair. There seemed to be lots of sweets on offer this year and stuff like that, unless I was hallucinating after 17 days at the Crucible. Um, but um, Ollie Bell was on great form as well, wasn't he? And I just remember us, you know, sh- half shouting ideas about snooker's future at each other during the morning as a conga was going around and, th- and then we joined the conga with, and i think judd trump was part of it as well i mean listen it's a great sport and that that reminds me dave talking about how wonderfully mad this sport is you have me cracking up with your commentary during that alarm i mean heavens above <laughs> that alarm i think you're lying <laughs> Because I know you now. I just know the way I think that you, you just have a lovely sense of the absurd. But you, you said something like, that's just not, not ideal, really, is it? Well, just <laughs> For those that missed it, there was this suddenly this ludicrously loud alarm blaring like in five second bursts. And it was just and it, obviously it's not funny, but, but it sort of is because it's snooker. It's a bit of both. But take take it away, Dave. <laughs> well, well the, the, the thing is... You know it's not going to be... It'll just be so, literally what it was, which is someone opened the wrong door. It's not like there's a terrorist alert or something. Neil Robertson handled it by just staring, basically, at someone in the distance, <laughs> almost willing them to sort of sort it out. No one was leaving. It wasn't like a fire alarm or anything. Um, but, yeah, I mean, this the sort of thing we enjoy, really. I think, I think it's funny. I've talked to someone, actually, quite recently, who's working in the sport, who was saying that we, we, we sort of... Although we are often frustrated that maybe it's not a bit more professional. Actually, the fact that it's not a bit more, bit more professional is why we enjoy it so much. Mm. <laughs> it's a bit shambolic around the edges and, and down-to-earth, I suppose, you know? Because we've got to remember, snooker, it, it, it got big very quickly. It, it didn't sort of... It had no real history as a professional game until television. Um, very much at a very low level, it was a professional game. No one knew any of the players. Then suddenly it burst into life and it wasn't really ready to be sort of run properly almost. And for many years it wasn't, of course. <laughs> it was run quite shambolically. It's much better now, but there's still those, those sort of elements are still there. And, and I think that's, that's good, actually. I quite like things like that because it keeps everybody grounded, I think. You know? Yeah, it's not airbrushed within an inch of its life, is it? Yeah. It's just, it is what it is. And that's why people like it. It's, uh... It's the appeal of some, uh, well, sports like darts. Well, I, it's weird how darts gets lumped in with snooker a lot for, for some reasons, but in many ways it's complete opposite in some ways. But, yeah, it's not uh, it's not polished completely, and we like that. Mm. But I get what you mean. Sometimes it's frustrating in other ways. But, um, yeah, I, I completely agree. Uh, and that party, yeah, I don't, I don't know how people get in that party. <laughs> there must be some ways, because we met people who would listen to the podcast, didn't we, there? Um who were just fans at the Crucible. So you can get in there somehow. I'm not sure how, but if you can, then do, because uh, I think Nick saying Barking Mad is about, about right. You're just sort of chatting to someone, Jack Wasowski, and then just be like, sorry, I'm just going to join the conga for a bit. I'll be back in a bit. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, there's all sorts of people there. Uh, someone from, some 
local councillor for the Green Party was chewing my ear off for ages, and Sean Murphy's wandering around. It's interesting who you, you get to speak to. Um, so, yeah, if you investigate how to get in there if you're in, in Sheffield at the World Championship final because it's worth a visit. I mean, we signed our, well, it's my still my first and only ever autograph. I assume it's <laughs> yours still, Nick, but we did that in that room. And uh, I don't know if it'll ever, yeah, it was a, it was a surreal experience. It's, it's not mine, of course, but um, it, was what, it was my first in connection with the podcast, certainly. Well, yes, it is a barking mad night. Actually, your time is not great, Phil, because I, I can say with some authority, they actually tightened up a little bit this year. They, they gave out rather fewer tickets. Right. Yes, it's been a bit of a bun fight. And I have to say, it sounds a bit exclusive for me to say i think that's why i enjoyed it a bit more because it, they kept yeah. the num- they kept the numbers down it wasn't as busy in there you know more room to breathe am i on the right lines here dave oh i don't, I don't know I, I i it seemed pretty busy to me i mean in the old the old embassy days when embassy sponsored it it was a sit-down dinner it was very formal but normally it wouldn't start i mean obviously a late final and there were plenty of those you could literally be starting the soup at like one in the morning, which has <laughs> never been a thing, has it? It's never been a thing. It's not a three-course meal. But again, that's a very snooker thing. It's like, we've, you know, we've arranged the dinner and we're just going to have the dinner, you know? Um, but and then it would descend after that into the sort of anarchy that, you know, that, that, you, that you see every year. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, you, you sort of have to go. I always think, like, why am I here? But you sort of have to go, don't you? Because it, it is part of it, really, you know? What <laughs> need a bit of a release after that? I feel like that anyway. Even though I'm not usually there every single day, but uh, it's knackering. I think you sort of feel like you deserve some sort of treat at the end of it. I suppose I think the World Championship is the biggest treat we have, but uh, it is a lot of work and it's <laughs> long hours and everything. So I feel it's a bit of sort of letting off steam at the end of that. I suppose. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. You're starting on the soup at one in the morning. That's never been a thing, has it? Now that is a very good. <laughs> collection of words there <laughs> for this joint podcast now uh, Dave while, pro- while I'm thinking about your commentary of course excellent last night uh, during that Mark Selby you, you were your, your words were a perfect companion to the pictures but I have to say one thing you highlighted and you were right to it probably didn't cross my mind enough how important Turkey was you were talking about that being a big highlight of the year now I think we we share the fact that we didn't go I know you didn't Phil I don't think you did either Dave so no. We're watching it from afar. Many of our colleagues and friends did, of course. We saw the videos. We saw the pictures. It looked marvellous. It New frontiers in every sense for snooker. And perhaps we'll come to it when we talk about our hopes for the year. That's certainly one of, you know, an early revelation for me, for me to say that we, we do want this game to spread more, and partly dependent on the pandemic, of course. But that was a marvellous week, wasn't it, Dave? The crowds went up during it. And what you said about seeing the excitement on the faces... I thought was 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 brilliant. You said you can almost see them mentally rehearsing, getting their tickets for next year, and it just it, the importance of the spreading of this game can never be underestimated, can it? Yeah, that's right, and and that's specifically regarding Judge Trump's one four seven. Um, all maximums are special. I think that was possibly, if if you're going to sort of say the most important maximum this year, it was that one because it definitely. I mean, the final wasn't a classic with Matt Sell. You know, Trump sort of dominated it. But that moment, you could see it's it sort of you know it brought the whole week together really, and it's almost like that that is that will that will spark ticket sales for for, for next year. Um, yeah, it's always interesting when you go to a new country. Obviously, in Turkey, they've, they've watched it on Eurosport for a number of years. 
Um, but you know, it's so hard to get tournaments on. You know, people say, uh, the players say, you know, oh, why, you know, why haven't we got more ranking events? Well, it, it takes years. That took years to get on that tournament. Um, you know, you need the promoter, you need the venue, the TV, all the things to come together. Um, and you know, you see people complaining about things like the carpet. You know, just ridiculous things that don't matter. Now, the fact is, Turkey obviously known for its its carpets. It's, mm-hmm. it's actually part of the culture. So I had no problem with it at all. I thought it looked really distinctive. Um, Trump, I think, there proved his real worth to the sport. You know, he conducted himself really well that week. He was the figurehead at the event, and he won the event. And yeah, I thought you could see the appreciation for that that maximum. So many people would have seen 147s on TV, but it's nothing like actually seeing one in the flesh. And I always think with the maximum, people say they're more common, which they are. But if you go to the snooker and you see one, when you go home to your nearest and dearest, that'll be the first thing you mention. I saw a maximum. So it's still special. And it was more special there because obviously it was the first one in in Turkey. And I just remember one other thing, um, Dave. I think it was during... Where did Mark Selby get? Was it the British? Yeah. 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 And I remember you saying during that, I think as he was building up to towards the end of getting it, and you were saying, actually, what maybe isn't always realised is how much everyone's invested in this. And mm. it was direct, it was a very specific thing, actually, thinking about it, with Lewis Hurt, your ITV colleague, that never, yeah. never directed one, had that we had that great images of seeing it. But you were saying everybody. And it's true, you know, when you're around the tournament and that happens... It's the journalists in the press room, of course. It's everyone in the arena. It's everyone working backstage. Everyone becomes invested in that moment. And it doesn't sound too corny, but it's almost when that when things like that happen that you realise there is a sort of family element to snooker and there is a kind of collective d- desire for it to be successful and for us all to enjoy it. And that, and that shouldn't be forgotten, should it? No, I mean, Lewis. I mean, Lewis is, is a fantastic guy, um, brilliant director. But he... He, he and he, when he started doing the snooker, he said, "My ambition is to do a maximum," and it became a running joke because he kept on missing out on them. He would either not be on the right shift, he would have swapped a shift. There was one occasion where someone came in, essentially they were sort of training her up to be a director, and they gave her a couple of frames and she did a maximum, and he <laughs> sat alongside her. So he kept missing out, and it just became honestly the WhatsApp group, the ITV. That's all was spoken about for years, and then suddenly he got to do it. And what was funny was. Um, he was really nervous. You could hear because Lewis is one of the most gregarious people when he's directing and really positive and enthusiastic. He went really quiet and he was literally just calling out the cameras. That's all he was saying. And you could hear he was getting nervous because it meant a lot. And if you've seen the video, he sort of explodes at the end. It was brilliant, actually. But you're right. Yeah, people, I mean, put it this way. There's no reason not to want to see a maximum, is there? You know, it, it, it still is something special, I think. And, and obviously, Neil Robertson's at the Crucible was brilliant. Um we saw, you know, the, Mark Williams last week. That was a fantastic break. Yeah, it's still something special, and I think, I think we, you know, we should, we should. Sport is full of a lot of hype and a lot of overhype, but we should still recognise the moments that actually are organically special. That is an achievement to make a maximum. Okay, it's been 183, whatever, but that's not that many when you consider the tens of thousands of frames that have been played. So that they are still something to, to savour. I think, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Mark Williams, it was only his third, which sounds not that many over 30 years. That shows how special they are when a player of his calibre makes one every decade. <laughs> it's mad, really. Um, I know it's not actually been one every decade, but over the over the piece. Um, but yeah, back to Turkey, that carpet, I thought actually was great because of how used we'd been having seen the same thing over and over again. And it was 
apart from the old advertising boardings around the table, tournaments for a good two couple of years had largely looked almost identical, hadn't they? Most of them anyway. So I thought it was a nice a nice change to see something different. It may not have been to everyone's taste, but you know, it gives it its own look, as did, and I had to mention it, the giant trophy. Um <laughs> Bigger is not always better when it comes to things like that, but I like how they just thought, right, it's our first first gig over here. We've got to make this stand out, get something the size of the players. I don't know how he got it home. I hope he did. Um, but, yeah, he must have, uh, must have had to book another seat on a plane for that thing. <laughs> Indeed, you know, a big one for trophies. That certainly was a, a, pretty, uh, a pretty one-off one. Well, you are listening to a joint podcast Christmas special here with David Hendon from the Snooker Scene Podcast and uh, Phil Haig and Nick Metcalf from the Talking Snooker Podcast. Now, Dave, you talk about great moments. I mean, the, the world, I think, is still reacting to uh, a truly incredible sporting event that we saw yesterday, uh, Sunday. I don't mean the English Open final. I mean, of course, the World Cup final in Qatar, which I have to say, not just to be purposely contrary, but wasn't the most exciting contest for 80 minutes actually it was very one-sided but then for the last 10 of normal time extra time and penalties was absolutely extraordinary up there with any of the breathtaking sport any of us have seen in in our lifetimes let's be clear and of course it ended with glory for for Lionel Messi uh, and and Argentina but the moments thing and and the the sort of the, the high peaks of magic sport thing we of course saw in this sport with Ronnie O'Sullivan what he did at the Crucible and I guess I mean, we all do, but maybe more myself and you, Phil, would cover more of those sort of wide range of sports and try and put it maybe into to context with what we saw with, with Ronnie. Winning the, that seventh world title, equaling Stephen Hendry, that embrace with Judd Trump. I mean, I think for me, that would probably have to be the moment of the year for sheer emotion. And it was just, you know, we, we, we're blessed to have seen some marvellous sport this year. Think about England winning the... Women's Euros, what a story that was. This Qatar World Cup, you know, so many other ones. Great test matches we've seen, of course, England have won at home and abroad. But this was right up there, wasn't it? Not just in snooker, but in sport. Yeah, um, definitely. It was an unbelievable achievement um, at his age. I mean, it would be an unbelievable achievement at any age, but to keep going at this stage of his life, his career, um, is Unbelievable. And yeah, you're right about the emotion because you just don't see that from Ronnie O'Sullivan very often at all, if ever. Um, I can't remember seeing anything like it, really. Um, the hug was mad, really, but sort of interesting um, and uh, unexpected. And yeah, we were sort of privileged to be in that press room with him afterwards. And he was he was still very emotional in there. Um, yeah, remarkable stuff. And uh we're still waiting to see the documentary, aren't we? That was such a huge sort of narrative going through going through that tournament. And uh, hopefully it's timed well. To, I'm not sure when it's coming out, probably just before the next World Championship, I think. Is that right? Or at some point before then. Um, and hopefully, you know, you feel like maybe it have lost a bit of momentum, but hopefully that just brings it back to the forefront again of what an amazing thing it was because um, he made it look easy, didn't he? He didn't really... He wasn't really challenged uh, heavily at any point, and he didn't. I didn't really think he was in top gear at any point either. It was a remarkable thing to see, um, and yeah, that status. I mean, I've we mentioned the World Cup. I think sort of the goat debate it gets very, very tedious in that sport. Um, 
uh, it doesn't have to be sort of what what every match is talked uh, is turns to. Um, but that was certainly the end of the debate for most people in our sport, wasn't it? And uh, what a way to do it! You got to do it in style, just like Messi did uh, in Qatar. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and and Dave, I saw that lovely chat you had with Sam Fletcher up from WSC in the summer when you were walking around, I think, at the Championship League and um, reflecting walking on... For, walking for miles we were, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, you were reflecting on that, but uh, I think I'd, we'd like to hear you do it again. I mean, you've obviously commentated on so many special moments. I mean, I'm not going to ask you, you tell me if it was your number one, but I imagine it was right up there. It was, it was something special, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the point I made in that interview was that I was there when Hendry won his seventh. Um, in 99 it was very different feel because there was a feeling of inevitability about it which wasn't quite with Ronnie you know there was still because it took so much longer I suppose um, with Hendry you thought he would then win an eighth you know but the fact that he got to seven beat the, the Davis Reardon record there was no tears from him it was just yeah of course I've won it again sort of thing And, and but the, the feeling then was well who who will ever get near to this you know who could possibly equal it, beat it, um, it will take a long time. And it has taken a long time, but O'Sullivan has done it. Hendry has actually stood by our commentary box applauding very quietly. There was never shown on, the cameras never picked it up for whatever reason, but I thought that was pretty classy just to stand there out of the out of the way, but showing his respect, one great champion to another. Um, yeah, and we saw the real Ronnie O'Sullivan. There was no sort of too cool for school stuff there. It was all, it all came pouring out of him because it wasn't just... 17 days of effort it was 30 years of effort actually and a lot of difficult times particularly when he was younger that's the thing for me with Ronnie he's the great survivor of the sport there were times when I remember when when Hendry won won that in 99 there were people saying Ronnie would never win it because it was too hard and his life was too traumatic and too much turmoil and so on so to get to seven incredible um and yeah, it was to be in the room, to be in the arena for that was very special because people will still talk about that 50 years from now. And oddly enough, someone made this point, one of, the, one of my listeners, in a funny sort of way, if he wins an eighth, it might not feel so special. I don't think we'll see that same outpouring. It was getting to seven. It was like Phil says, and I, I think the GOAT debate is, is, is pretty tiresome because they're all great and we should celebrate them all. But that was the one argument against it was that he was on six and now he's put that to bed. So that's gone. Um, and we'll see whether he wins it again, whether he does or not. It doesn't really matter. That was a, I think you sometimes have to take a moment to sort of um, almost notice what's happening. That was special. That wasn't just another, oh, the World Championship's done for another year. That was special. Um, and it was great for the sport. It created a lot of interest outside of the usual sort of snooker bubble. And yeah, full respect to him. I thought his his focus during the tournament was exemplary. He didn't get involved in anything off table, really. He just got his head down and proved what a great player he is. We knew it anyway, but he actually proved it again. No, he really did. It was it was it was something else. It was it was uh, mar- marvelous to see. And yeah, two things. I've said this before, but I I think Ronnie's one of an a number appropriate amount of world titles, if I can sort of put it in that rather ugly way. People will still say he's underachieved, and it's a it's a case. He is that much of a genius. There is a case for that. But I think seven, when you consider that the difficulties he's had in life, the mental health struggles he's had, it just feels about right. And the other thing 
I won't lose sleep about it either way, but there's some, there will be something nice for me if he doesn't add to seven. Mm. I just think for him and Seth Hendry to be level, there'll be something about that as well. I know what you mean about him getting to eight. It almost feels like it, this will, it won't quite be as, as much of an outpouring as this one was. But you never know. It, you know, if, if it comes in five years' time, it might be because then we'll have, you know, enough time will have passed after this one type thing. But I just think, yeah, it, there'll be something about those two great champions um, being on seven. Some people still go into bat for Hendry. And listen, it's by no means a ridiculous claim at all. Hendry was an unbelievable champion. I know, you know, your good friend Michael McMullen will often say this, Dave, and I think this is very true. I think it's forgotten at times by how Hen- by how dominant Hendry was. And when Michael McMurrin did an interview with Hendry, I think for, for 20 years since 99, Hendry said, you know, even I forget sometimes. And because it came in such a concentrated period, uh, I think there's a strong case of saying that, that it, it is sometimes forgotten. And maybe that's exacerbated by the fact that he retired earlier than some of the other greats like the Ronnies. And I mean, it shouldn't really be a big factor that he's not playing well now. But there's a little bit of inkling of that. Maybe all these things, I don't know. So enough time has passed. But we can forget how special and dominant he was, I think. And we, we shouldn't. But by the same token, yeah, I'm certainly one of those that thinks Ronnie's now proved he's the best by what he's done and the sheer longevity of it and, and everything. I'm, I'm a bit conscious, Phil, that we've got our review of the year. You won't be surprised to hear, folks, we never had a great plan for this. In fact, we never <laughs> had any plan, did we? Apart from to come on the natural about snooker. But maybe we won't go mad on what's happened so far this season. Apart from, I do want to talk a little bit about the UK Championship. And oh, I heard Alan McManus say this, I'm not sure where, but he maybe alongside you one day, Dave, on commentary. He was saying that that was a big deal, actually, and we've got a bit of correspondence about the German Masters, actually, and how that can maybe be boosted a little bit later. But um, the UK field was great, wasn't it, this time? It, it definitely restored, I'm going to say it, some of the gravitas of that tournament. And I think now that will be the way for, for times and years to come, won't it? Yeah, it was It was brilliant. Um, everything about it was really good. Uh, I really enjoyed the qualifiers, popped down there. The coverage was great. Dave did a brilliant job. Um, and then, yeah, it's hard not to not to think that the main stages um, with the 32 players was brilliant. The walk-ons and everything, the setup in the venue, um, the games were great. Um, special moments like Jimmy, and that wouldn't have happened in the, the system. And, uh, you know, we don't, can't arrange tournaments just to help Jimmy White out. But um, things like that are more likely in that situation. And, uh, yeah, I think it was... It was almost it was almost ten out of ten really for the changes. Um, there were players who I spoke to at the qualifiers who didn't agree with it, um, but you will literally never find everyone agreeing among snooker players, even ones that got to be fair to them, even ones that came through because that's the ones I spoke to most. And when they come through qualifying, they were saying shouldn't have happened, shouldn't be happening like this. But you know that'll uh, that'll always be the way. But yeah, it was it was fabulous. I was really impressed with. Um, the Q zone and everything at York, and I got a lot of chat, and uh, but that was exactly what the kind of thing that we were asking for, wasn't it? Something for the fans to to get involved with, and uh, at the arena, something to do. And I thought it was brilliant. So yeah, certainly it looks like that will be the way forward. And uh, you know, if, if you speak to Ding Jun as I did um, shortly after that, he thinks all tournaments should be like that. I don't know if that'll be the case, but um, certainly there is arguments for that. And Judd Trump said the same in an interview you did. 
for me at Snooker Scene Magazine, of course, that, you know, he said, that was great what happened at York. That should be, a, in some ways, only a start and we should see more for fans to do at tournaments, which I think we all want, really. Listen, there's an expense involved, but sometimes you've got to speculate to accumulate. And, yeah, that Cuso was great, wasn't it, David, at York? Because, you know, we could see players practising. We could see your colleagues at Eurosport in the studio, uh, stars of the game like Judd, Judd Trump, Jack Lasowski, uh, playing with the fans. Judd Leonard, a fan is cute at one time. It's all part of it, David. It's all part of that tournament package. And I think, you know, that was part of the whole success of this UK. Oh, definitely. Uh, and I think the thing is the players don't mind being close to the public. It's not like they sort of are all looking to sort of come in the back way and avoid everybody. I think what we saw in the UK Championship was, was the power of the BBC, uh, actually, because for years World Snooker said that they were wedded to the flat draw system and outside of the World Championship, it wasn't going to change. We're not going to change it. You know, you can, whatever arguments you want, we're not going to change it. But then the BBC kind of said, well, this is this tournament's fallen behind our other two. We need to change it. And they did, just straight, just straight away. They just changed it. And for the better, I think. I think it worked far better. It had more prestige. Um, the players who were complaining that they had to qualify were the same people complaining that to play in the back room <laughs> when they actually were at York before. Yeah. Um, it was a better spectacle. The, the truth is, you see, and a lot of players don't get this, the important people are the customers, the fans who come along, broadcasters who put the money in, the sponsors who put the money in. In fact, they're the, th- they're the three sources of income in the sport, ticket sales, broadcasters and sponsors. They are the people you need to keep happy. And the fact is, a lot of players actually this year were guaranteed prize money, which was not the case last year. If you lost in the first round, you got nothing last year. It was, it was a six-and-a-half grand match, I think, last year. Mm. To get in the last 64, at least this year, if you came in from the second round, you're guaranteed money. Um, I think everyone felt it was a better event and definitely the, the activities in York as well. Um, I do think it's you have to give World Snooker Talk credit for listening to the criticism of, of some of the events. They have tried. It's not always easy. Every venue is different. There's not always room. But they have tried to put more on. And the feedback even I got last week from Brentwood, people said they enjoyed the, 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 you know, the tournament and they enjoyed going there. So that's good. We had, I had a sort of fan special in the summer with um, three fans, and their sort of feedback was mixed on their experiences of various various, various tournaments. Um, but there does seem to be a move now to try and improve that. And it, But the point is, I guess, it shouldn't just be, a bit like what Trump was saying, it shouldn't just be for the UK Championship. It's got to be across the board, try and improve, try and make snooker, you know, because it's actually good value for money in terms of the, the, the sort of cost. But try and make it a really good day out because then you will get people coming back and they'll tell their friends and family you've got to come as well. Uh, but, yeah, that, I, it, I, I have no criticism of what happened at York. I thought it was really good. I was there the whole time. I thought it was a great, great experience. And the atmosphere when Jimmy came out, you know, that was, that was brilliant. You know, that was um, really, really good, yeah. Yeah, it was smashing, smashing tournament. Mark Allen, of course, won it. And uh, well, he's certainly the player of the season so far. Loads of treats to come, of course, uh, in the early months of, uh, of 2023, kicking off with the Masters. Maybe we'll do correspondence now. And I, I don't want to sort of hog these. Have you, have you got these up as well, Phil? Brian Campbell's our first one. Um, what, I will do it. <laughs> you go ahead. I'm on, I'm on route to it. Okay, well, maybe uh, William Callahan can be with you. Brian Campbell, then, who, by the way, I met at the Crucible, and if there's a nicer fan of our podca- podcast, plural, I-, I-, I don't know them. He's a, he's a, a really lovely chap, Brian, and uh, Merry Christmas to you, Brian. He says, Dear Nick, Phil, and Dave, 
I'm so glad you are doing a special together again after last year's bumper episode. I'm sure there are others like me who really look forward to the Talking Snooker and Snooker Scene podcast each week. And I'd just like to thank you for all your time and effort, as it really is appreciated. We never cut out praise, of course, do we, Phil? One of the, one of the, one of the, one of the commandments of, the, of our podcast. A couple <laughs> of weeks ago on Talking Snooker, there was a chat about the German Masters qualifying and whether the top 16 should automatically qualify. I wonder if Dave has some thoughts from a Eurosport perspective. Whilst it is nice to have shocks and upsets, is it not harder for TV to attract the more casual viewer and boost ratings without so many of the star names competing? And from World Snooker's point of view, in order to grow the game outside of the UK and China, the top 16 at the German Masters would immediately give the tournament even more gravitas and prestige. It would be a win-win all round. Finally, I wish you all a very happy Christmas and best wishes for 2023. Uh, kind regards, Brian. Well, great to hear from you, Brian. And Well, you, you were directly asked the question that day, so perhaps we'll come to you. I mean, my view is there's a balance. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not. But anyway, you, 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 you can say what you think. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I suppose the question is, would the, would the German Masters be enhanced if the whole of the top 16, including all the star names of the sport, were there? And the answer, obviously, is yes, it would. If Ronnie O'Sullivan, Judd Trump, Neil Robertson, Mark Seb, all those guys were there guaranteed, it would be a better event. I, I think we often talk about the, 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 the passion of the German fans, which is true, but Temper Drum is not full from day one. It's usually full at the weekend. Obviously, people are less likely to be at work and so on for the one-table stage. It's not full from day one. Um, now, maybe it would be if they were all there. I think the issue actually is that the ranking system um, It's a money list and that favours the flat draw. If you're going to start having more tiered events, you'll have to change the ranking system. Now, a lot of people would say it should change, and I can't tend to agree with that, actually. Um, but that would obviously be a major overhaul um, that, that would have to take place. I think we will see more of these tiered events. If China comes back and we don't know exactly what's happening there, it may be we, ha- we, we have to, through necessity, take fewer players to the final stages. So we will have to... Um, but also they, they will want top players there as part of the sort of deal. So we will have to change it. I'm not in favour of every event being like that. I actually quite like, you know, some of the flat draw events. I think that works in the home nations, for example. Um, I don't think you want it too restrictive. It used to be um, that you had sort of four qualifying rounds to play the top 16. That seems a lot, really. So I think there's a balance. I think you have to look at it on a tournament by tournament basis. Um but, the, but specifically, we're asked about the German Masters. Would it be a better event if they're all there? Yes, it would. Um, and the German qualifiers always seem to be at a rotten time. They used to be actually just before Christmas. This year, they were just after the UK. And it seems a recipe for losing all the star attractions. And a lot of them have been lost. And it's a shame because the German fans, you can't take for granted their interest in the sport. They will still turn out. But of course, they want to see Ronnie play. They want to see Judd Trump play. So... Um, yeah, it would be better if they were there. That's that's the answer. Yeah, undoubtedly. Um, and yeah, the, the placement of qualifiers has been a sort of bugbear for a lot of people, a lot of players, definitely I spoke to, how they're so far ahead of tournaments uh, this season and I think last season as well, was it? But yeah, certainly this season. Um, and it, it's hard to sort of put put your finger on why that is so so disorientating, so unsatisfactory, but it is. Um, and certainly, yeah, the German has been hit hard by that. It's tricky because obviously 
we we went away from uh the tier system didn't we sort of give more parity to everyone everyone's got the same chance um and then when those when people capitalize on that and beat the top players it's like oh well we didn't want that to happen <laughs> but we also don't want that to happen in, in for the reasons that you said um and it, it seems it's, it's much more galling when it's a tournament like the German Masters where those great fans don't get to see that much snooker compared to what we get over here. We're absolutely t- treated all the time to endless tournaments. So um, it, it's more, it's just a shame for those guys more than anything. Um, but yeah, I suppose, you know, the uh, the guys that have beaten them in qualifying will be thinking, oh, hang on a second, I should be getting some credit for this rather than just let's change the system back to avoid that. But um yeah, and Daddy, I mean, unquestionably, that's right, what Dave said. The tournament's going to be more appealing, more exciting if you head to the Temperdrome with, with the star names. There's no getting away from that. Um, and yeah, I think that's right also about people saying more, there should be more tiered, tiered system. It only really works with the change to the ranking system. And uh, I mentioned this, I can't remember what it was, a few weeks ago on Talking Stuka. Um, it feels like we're sort of unpicking a lot of the stuff that, was changed in sort of the Barry Hearn revolution, which, you know, is fine. But we had, like, obviously had boom year. Well, not, well, we just had very good years where everything was going very nicely after those changes from that Barry made. Um, and then there's sort of been all sorts of other factors, mainly COVID, um, that has changed everything. And now we're sort of unpicking them back, which it may not be wrong, but we probably just have to be a little bit careful about going back to where we were, having had such a great time which has mainly been dislodged by the pandemic, I think. Um, so, yeah, I'm not saying they're wrong to go back to those things, but we've just got to be tread carefully, I suppose. Oh, I mean, I pretty much agree with all that, Phil. I agree with it when you said it at the time some weeks ago, and I agree with it now. But, uh, yes, we do have to be a bit careful. I mean, there was a ruthlessness, wasn't there, about the Barry Hearn years? I can hear him in my head now, you know, no no prize for second place, you know, the... If you're good enough, you'll make it, and all that kind of thing. But we we don't that word cozy that came up earlier when we were talking about um, the late Maldunican. Um, we we don't want to. I just wanted to mention him again. There, really, that was quite famous. Um, we don't want to go down that route necessarily as well. We there's a balance, isn't there? Um, but I know what Brian's getting at in the sense that I think I've had a bit of a thought in the back of my head for quite some time now that we. We almost don't make enough of that tournament in Berlin on some levels. We kind of say how great it is and I'm not say it's lip service. We mean it. It is great. We're hoping to make it this time ourselves, Phil. We'll see. Um, and the crowd and the venue. But I almost think, actually, it, it's quite short in terms of the number of days. We have the qualifiers so far behind. I thought, Dave, you put it very well. It's almost... We're, we're creating the wrong recipes for the stars to make it, actually. And it's not just about the stars, it's about all the players. And as you say, Phil, the ones that have won qualifiers, I think, well, hang on, I won these matches. I deserve credit for that. They do. But uh, yeah, I, I, I do I do see the, the sort of spirit behind Brian's point here that I do wonder if we sell that event enough. Because actually, you know, there's something so special about that event that can all, I know, Dave, I think we maybe don't want to go down the, the triple crown route and, 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 and you know, how, how we rank tournaments. Let's, let's go down it. It's crystal. <laughs> <let's go down laughs> you know, I know you're not necessarily a big fan of ranking tournaments generally, and I, I know exactly what you mean, but there's something about the German that has almost the potential to be one of the very, very best events of the game. I think it almost is, but do you know what I'm getting at, Dave? It's almost like there's mm. just a slight feeling in, in me that actually, why don't we sell that even more than we do type thing? 
Well, it may, yeah. I mean, it may even just be the slot in the calendar. It's sort of just after the Masters, and there's a lot of tournaments in that spell. So you sort of, the German Masters will finish, and another one will probably start almost the next day, and then you're into that one. Maybe we don't consider it enough. The issue there is the venue, the Tempodrome, is so good that it's really expensive to hire. And because yeah. of that, if they hired it for even one more day, they'd, they'd actually lose money. You know, it's it's expensive, but it is, to, 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 to use the word iconic, it is. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great venue. Um, but therefore, they can't have more than 32 players. They did one year. They, there was, they played them. There was, there was one table in a completely different room. I, for some reason, I remember Rod Lawler was put in there, and that was no good. So they can only really take 32. So if you don't take 32, then, you know, okay, you can have qualifying, but you risk losing the top players. And then it feels a little bit less special if they're not there. Um, so this will be something, obviously, I'd like to talk to promoters and, and I suppose Eurosport as well. But it, it seems, yeah, I know what you're saying. It feels like it could be bigger because anyone who's been to it, the, the final weekend certainly, is an extraordinary occasion. It's as good as any tournament you'll see. Um, and I think that does come across on TV. But um, I just feel you can't take for granted the German interest in snooker too much, you know? And it, it's a shame, I think, that they don't get to see, as this is ba- basically their only chance every year to watch live snooker, they don't get to see the players that we maybe take for granted in the UK, you know, because in, in Britain, because we have so many tournaments, even if, say, Ronnie's not entered one, he'll play in the next one. You get to see him there. They don't get to see him, which is a shame. Yeah, I think on the, sort of the specialists, the, I always think, and it's so easy to say this kind of thing, they should just put prize money up because 80 grand is is sort of not up in the upper echelons of the tournaments, is it? But, you know, then things that you say there, Dave, about how expensive the, the arena is to hire, that's what comes into that kind of thing. And, you know, players will say, say things like that and fans will say it all the time, oh, just put the prize money up. It, it ain't as easy as that. But if it was as easy as that, you know, that would... Uh, elevator, and we had we had a few increases in prize money this year, didn't we? You know, the UK got an extra fifty grand on the top. I think it was up to a quarter of a million. And did that really need it? I don't know. Maybe it did it. Obviously, the the changes and that kind of hurt the adding to the prestige back. But you know, maybe that could have been better spent elsewhere. We don't know. But um, yeah, it feels like it could. Um, it feels like it's sort of alongside in terms of. At how it's presented and the prize money and everything, just above the home nations. But but I know what you Nick say. It feels like it should be a lot more, a lot bigger than that. Um, so yeah, um, I don't know. There's there's all sorts of issues in there. It's easy to say well how to, how to to fix things. It's much harder to do them. Very very easy for the armchair. This game on on money levels on and off the table. Phil, maybe we'll stick with you. Do, do you want to do William Callahan and David because they're quite sure. And William's more just praise, which we love, of course. <laughs> yeah, I've got him here for William. Just a quick email to thank you both for the excellent work you've done with the podcast. Essential listening for all snooker fans, and also to congratulate Dave Hendon on his twenty five years working in snooker. A tremendous commentator, and his podcast is also a great listen. Wishing you all a very Merry Christmas and all the best for 2023. That's very kind of you, William. Thank you very much. And uh, David on Twitter, do you have one episode of either the Talking Snooker podcast or the Snooker Scene podcast that is your favourite above all others? Merry Christmas to you all and thanks for the great podcasts. Um, I don't know who wants to... I could go first on that. Um, and it might it may well be the same as yours, Nick, but I guess John Virgo was, was a highlight. I think that's the one I sort of laughed most during you could sort of tell he's 
been an excellent after dinner speaker for many years. You can tell a tale, um, but there have been many good ones. We sort of uh, sang our own praises for quite a while in the last episode when we were, it was our hundredth episode. So uh, uh, we went through it a bit too much there, probably. So I'll just leave it there and uh, move on to you, Nick. Snap, John Virgo. Uh, I don't want to think it will never be displaced because I'm, I'm, I'm hoping it, we could do an episode that, that might do it. But I think there was something about it was a year in or nearly a year into to us doing it. We've had a lot of terrific guests before that and, of course, many since. But there's just something about Virgo. I don't know whether it's the combination of of him as a player, which we started by saying is, is too easily forgotten, former UK champion. Sometimes people just say, oh, John Virgo, the sort of, the, you know, the, the person that's been in comedy or in show business and actually, no, he's a good player. That's the first thing we should remember. There was that, plus, of course, the show business element, just the fact he's so entertaining. And also, I have to say, this sounds like blowing it own trumpet. It's not like that. I, I'm just being factual. I don't really remember hearing John Virgo talk very much about the game. Now, he did the rounds of all the radio and, and TV studios when his book came out. But again, it was more the anecdotes, the big break stuff. But to actually hear John talk about Judd Trump, Ronnie O'Sullivan, the state of the game, his own memories, the future, I thought was marvellous. Uh, an episode I'm, I remain, I'm sure, going to say, immensely proud of. That'll be my number one. But of course, we, we've had so many absolutely terrific ones. And you're right, we went through a lot of those last week now Dave you've got an awful lot more episodes to choose from so it's going to be probably a harder job for you maybe you can have a few but obviously believe it with you I don't well not really um of, of yours I really enjoyed oh. the Hazel Irvin the, I really enjoyed the Hazel Irvin interview um mm. mainly because I really like Hazel but actually I thought she was very interesting anyone in trying to sort of get into the media I thought she was very interested in talking about you know Steve Ryder how he helped her and just sort of paying back that sort of help she's done. I know she's done that for, for other people coming to the industry. Um, she just speaks well, doesn't she, and, and represents the sport well. And, and um, she was just really interesting to listen to, I think, um, which I thought she would be. But um, I, that was really enjoyable. Uh, on my own, I mean, no, not really. I mean, it's hard to say, isn't it? You know, it's because it, 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 a lot of it is just me talking to myself. So it's not really, uh, not really going to sort of win a BAFTA necessarily. But, um, I think, like, I, I, I did one quite recently. It was the day the Queen died, actually, and although I didn't know that before I set off. But where I live here in Birmingham, there's a lot of sort of snooker history. Um, mm. Literally five minutes away is where they had the first World Championship final. Um, and I'd never sort of twigged that that's where it was. And I went down there one day when I was doing nothing else to sort of investigate, you know, the, the area. And it turned out that there was obviously no remnants of what happened. But then I, I got the bus up to... Uh, to um, where Alex Higgins won in 72, which is just quite a few miles away. So I was in a sort of wistful mood. Um, now, how did that sound to people? I have no idea. But I quite enjoyed, I quite enjoyed going, going around. And, and the thing with snooker is we have, no, we have no purpose-built venues. They've all been played in other places. And it's a bit of a sort of warning, really, in a way, that you know, they all kind of disappear over time, I suppose. Even old venues people remember from the 80s. I think the Assembly Rooms in Derby is no more. Preston Guildhall closed, I think. Um, and there's no sort of sign that there was ever any of these great moments that we all remember sort of happened there, which is a shame, I think. Um, so, yeah, that was something a bit different, I suppose. Um, in the early days of the podcast, I did more interviews. Mark Williams was a, was a highlight because Mark doesn't do many interviews. Um, and he was very entertaining. 
Neil Robertson as well. He he did a long interview with me. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, I, I, I don't know. I, it's um, it's not really for me to say, is it? But uh, snooker bingo is quite enjoyable to do because you just sort of sit back and enjoy it, really. Um, yeah, uh, I've done a couple of those this year, I think. I think I think you've struck absolute gold with the snooker bingo. I love it. And I was uh, I was driving somewhere. I had quite a long drive, and I had one on and uh, chuckling away. It was a recent one. We had four of you on with Phil and Neil and Alan. And there were just very, very funny stories. Uh, Phil Yates can tell a tale with uh, with the best of them. Um, so yeah, that's brilliant. And also, I went. I when was this? Is probably over the summer. I went back to some of your very early episodes and was listening to some of those interviews. Mark Williams, I did, and there's a great one with Ali Carter, I remember, and Jason mm. Francis, people that you wouldn't necessarily hear elsewhere. So yeah, while we're slapping each other on the back, that was my that's the things I enjoy about your podcast. Thank you. Well, it was very enjoyable for you, to, uh, very kind of you, Tate, to, to mention ours. We, we were only asked to select our own, but that was kind of you. But it, it, you know, to return the favour, um, your episode when you went around Birmingham was was marvellous and quite moving. And so was your episode when you went to Blackpool with Alan. <laughs> I mean, found that, that queue lying around. That was um, also a joy. Now, I, I said sometimes you, you I, I could be wrong, but you're a little bit like, oh, everyone says bingo. But yeah, snooker player bingo is marvellous because you get those stories. I mean, I can listen to Phil Yates, you know, all day and all night. I nearly did once at, at, that, at, at, that, at that tournament at Barnsley. When I, when, I, when I say it all the time, but I was asked every time before entering the press room if I wanted a towel, which I didn't think was <laughs> said, gra- said, said gravitas to me, to be honest. But the one afternoon in the press centre... I did just listen to Phil, and I'm I'm a talker in life. I like talking, but listen, when you have got Phil Yates there next to you, sometimes you just got to listen. And what, what an entertaining character! And I have to say, Dave, you you wrote this in the in the column that you did for, for me at Snooker Scene, you, and and you said it as well. Talk about things that are underrated. I think Phil Yates might be a little bit, you know, and you talked about his contribution to the media. And I, I, you don't mind saying it again now? It's been massive, hasn't it, in terms of you know, what a voice, what an authority on the game, what a lover of the game. And I suppose, first and foremost, what a great bloke. Well, absolutely. I mean, when I started um, in the press room, and it was more and sort of newspaper dominated then. So you'd get a lot of quite big hitters turn up on the Nationals to serve the World Championship. But they were kind of, they wore it as a sort of badge of honour that they didn't really, couldn't be bothered to sort of learn anything about what anyone had done during the year or even like where anyone's ranked or anything like that. It was kind of a, for some of them, it was a bit of a holiday. So Phil was like the constant uh, person they would go to, to check bats and find stuff out. And it, it, I realised from then that he was so important to that room because without him, who was going to dispense these facts? It was kind of before Q Tracker and all that stuff. Um, so he was uh, obviously a very, I mean, he played snooker and he's a very committed fan of snooker and, you know, he wasn't just turning up as another journalist. He was very much, you know, a snooker man, if you like. Um, and obviously, I suppose he'd now be a veteran, you know, he's been there so long. Interesting story how his commentary career started, because um, I don't know whether he's even told this himself in public. One of the few stories he hasn't told in that case. But um, <laughs> he, um, the World Masters in Birmingham, so this was the Barry Hearns Wimbledon of Snooker event, um, and it was on Sky. And Sky, I don't think he'd ever shown snooker before, and they they basically appointed sort of football commentators to commentate with the odd player. And it was apparent after a few days that they were no good, basically. 
um, <laughs> because it's a very specialist kind of sport. It's not just one you can just just take to when you've done other sports. It, it takes there's a lot of sort of things that you need to sort of know. So they went in the press room and they they basically said, "Does any <laughs> to the journalist, does anyone want to audition to be a commentator?" And they found an obscure, the most obscure match they could as a sort of test commentary. We'll bring you in. And, you know, it's, it's, it's literally Steve Duggan against Val Dunican, whoever it is, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's just a match no one, no one had ever seen. But it turned out Phil had seen it and he's got such an extraordinary recall. He remembered it. So he was calling all the shots correctly because he'd seen this match and he got the gig and that's that. And he's been doing it ever since, basically. Um, so yeah, but no, he's, um, yeah, he's been very important. Um, I think in a lot of areas in commentary, he sort of did slightly change the way commentary was done. He made it a bit more statistical and just one of the great enthusiasts, you know, one of the great enthusiasts for the sport, which we obviously, we, we you know, we need, I think. Yeah. Shout out to, to, to my, one of my friends on the, on the golfing circuit, Matt Cooper, who used exactly that line about Phil Yates. So Phil's covered a lot of golf actually. Sometimes he'd cover mm. a, a, a quite a lot of the golf from the next grade down, shall we say, rather than yeah. a lot of pro tour. And I know my friend Matt will see in there, and he always says, say hello to Phil, one of the great enthusiasts. So mm-hmm. lovely that you repeated that line. But you, 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 I know you said on Twitter not so long ago, uh, Phil, that, 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 that Phil, another Phil, Phil Yates, has pretty much a 100% success rate when it comes to his gags with you. Not bad. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think they're sort of marmite with some people, but I love it. Uh, and I don't, I'm not ashamed of admitting that. Um, the cheesier, the better for me. And you can sort of tell when they're coming. And sometimes you can guess what he's going to go with, sometimes not, but uh, they always tickle me. So, yeah, uh, keep them coming. And I'm sure he will. <laughs> <laughs> Dave, we, we, we actually got... A combined bit of correspondence, which, which was mostly addressed to you. Do, do you have Tommy O'Pray to read out as it's for you? Or if not, then I can do it. <laughs> I do have, yeah, if you bear with me. No. Um, in my legendary preparation, I will find it. Uh... <laughs> I just thought it might be nice for you to do it. But Tommy is a, is another one, that Phil. We've had loads of lovely emails from, from Tommy over the years of doing it, haven't we? And uh, he's always so kind to us. And But this Tommy's been kind to all of us. Absolutely, sharing share the kindness at Christmas. It's what it's all about. I've got, a, I've got um, a, an email from World Snooker Tour here uh, offering all sorts of Christmas um, Christmas gifts for all the family. I'll delete that, I think. Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> oh, no, it's tickets. It's advertising tickets here. Yeah, that's what it is, yeah. Uh, uh, yes, now, you did send me this, Nick, but I, I actually... I'm struggling to find it now. Just bear with me. Oh, I've got it here. I've got it here. Good man. Right. Uh, uh, Tommy O'Pray. Yeah, here we go. Just a brief email to wish you a very happy Christmas and all the best for 2023. I'm really looking forward to the Christmas special with Nick and Phil. Last year was just brilliant. Well, <laughs> let's hope you've enjoyed this year's. Uh, oh, yes. Now, I asked... There was, I had an email from someone whose, whose nan took against Nigel Bond for no apparent reason. Um and so I asked for irrational dislikes of players. She just didn't like the look of him. And Nigel is the nicest man in the world. So, you know, but anyway, she just didn't like the look of Nigel Bond. So he said, so Tommy says, re-random irrational player dislikes. As a child, Alain Robert do terrify me for some reason. I've no idea why. Possibly the sharp features and beard. Fortunately, I've gr- grown up considerably since. Although I'm not a dislike, I thought the gentleman Joe Perry would have made an excellent James Bond. Oh, oh that's not a tie. It's not Nigel Bond, James Bond. Yes. Uh, always immaculately dressed and possesses that steely sharp look that says he's not to be meddled with. Anyway, enough said. Have a wonderful Christmas. 
Thank you for your continued contribution to snooker. Warmest regards to you and yours. Well, thank you, Tommy. Yes, I mean, I'm not sure. I don't think Joe Perry's ever been sort of mentioned in dispatches in Variety or the Hollywood Reporter for James Bond. But, um, well, you don't know, do you? You know, they might go left field. You don't know. You'd hope that they'd consider all, all avenues, wouldn't you? I heard Martin O'Donnell mentioned in in James Bond dispatches this season. Can't remember where that was. Must have been during the 900. But yeah, I guess I guess we're just wearing the appropriate clothes in snooker for people to be triggered in their mind that they might think of James Bond. But yeah, I, I don't think Martin or Joe are going to get the call any time soon. Seems unlikely. Elaine Robertu, he was a bit, he was known as a bit of I mean, not lovely guy, Elaine, but known as a bit of a um, sort of uh, accident prone. And uh, he 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 moved to the West Midlands um, as his base for a while, and he would practice with Martin Clark. Um, and, one, and one day he borrowed Martin's car to go shopping or something. And he's, he rang Martin about an hour later. He said, I've got a problem here, Martin. What's that? Your car's on fire. Now, it wasn't quite apparent how that happened. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, he'd only popped to the co-op. Um, but, yeah, that's Alain Robidoux. So maybe uh, uh, not an irrational dislike, but don't lend him your car, is what we're saying about Alain Robidoux. <laughs> oh, dear. fear of his... The of his beard shows how times have changed. I think sort of Robert Dew's pomp was a very beard-free era, whereas now it's much more common, as, as I'm demonstrating on this Zoom call. But yeah, I think they used to used to marry terrify kids more than they used than they do now, perhaps. Well, it's, yeah, I mean, times change, but th- there's a lot of players now, I'm not saying they look bad, but they, they, they have a lot of stubble going on, like Mark Williams, Ronnie has done it, whereas you'll never see, I don't know, Tony Mio, <laughs> unshaven. You know, those guys, different era, maybe. Maybe they were expected to, to have a proper shave. But anyway. Yeah. That definitely the thing. I remember watching cricket as a kid and test cricketers were certainly sort of scolded if they came out clean, uh, not clean shaven. But mm-hmm. yeah, that wouldn't be a problem now. Well, it's interesting. You look at some of the old snooker finals and, you know, a lot of men were wearing suits, not just dignitaries, just like ordinary punters would think, oh, it's the final of the whatever, the Grand Prix at the Hexagon. I'm wearing a suit, which you never see now. I mm. mean, I, know, I wouldn't say you should either. Um, you know, things move on, don't they? Mm-hmm. You, you even see that on old football footage, actually, old cup finals, loads of people, <laughs> loads of people in suits. Well, that was a wonderful exchange. And uh, the sentence I heard Martin O'Donnell mentioned in James Bond dispatches is probably not one that you're going to hear on any other podcast <laughs> anytime soon, I wouldn't have thought. Well, that was lovely of you, Tommy. He also says here, Nick and Phil, well, I'll take this opportunity to wish both of you and your respected families a very happy Christmas and an excellent new year. Thank you both for the work you put in every week to make your podcast so enjoyable. It really is a weekly treat to listen to. Warm with regards, Tommy. Thank you, Tommy. Merry Christmas to you. Now, Dave Tyndall. That name rings a bell. That name rings a bell. On email here. Now, what can we say about Dave that's not been said already? Not a lot. He refereed for us, of course, Phil, didn't he? He did it impeccably. Well, um, I, I, I actually saw him in York and I was asking him about this, um, this match. And he seemed to genuinely enjoy it, which surprised me. I thought it was... I thought it was all just podcast talk, but he, he actually he, he's actually spoke quite fondly of it. So... I don't know what that says about Dave necessarily, but yeah, good, good guy, Dave. I think. Yeah. yeah. Oh, you think? Yeah. Well, that's. Um, <laughs> I'm going to go further than that. I think I, I know he is. Um, <laughs> I, I'm going to say that it was a lot better than Tooting. Actually, I didn't think Tooting was bad, but that got really scrappy. I think we were much better this time, Phil. I don't. And actually, 
let's maybe go a bit further. We, we were sort of quite good at times, weren't we? But that, that's part. Well, well, maybe that's going too far. But well, we have set the bar very low, so I think on that. <laughs> well, this way, it wasn't as long as Tooting by any means, and I just thought it flowed better. There was real drama. I was very much broken by losing. But listen, you know, if, if Jimmy White can get over six world title defeats and world final defeats, then I can probably get over the Tony Mio trophy, Phil. Yeah, I don't think there are any frames much longer than half an hour. They were all sort of, there weren't any sort of real sort of dragging on for ages. But I'm well aware now, I'm, you've been talking about what you're going to get for Christmas this this year. And I think you're going to come in hot next year. And I've got to really be on my, really got to be on my game next time round. I'm getting a keyboard for me, that's right. And I'm also going to give Joe, Joe, Joe Perry a, a, a message one day, or drop him a line. Yeah, um, no expense spared. Not saying he's going to push me over the line for victory, Phil, but I'm going to have a, put a little bit more attention to it this time. And let's turn to Dave Tyndall then, who, who writes to us on email and says, Dear Dave, Nick and Phil, thanks for making this another year to remember in snooker. And it's great to hear you're coming together again for this Christmas special. One theme that seems to come out of both podcasts is how many people like me fell back in love with the game recently. So I've coined a name for us, even though it's rather clumsy. It's GBISDL, pronounced GBISDL, meaning a person who got back into snooker during lockdown. This is trademark Tyndall stuff, this isn't it? (laughs) So perhaps at the Crucible next April, I can meet up with fellow GBISDLs. Given our backgrounds, we would be equally happy, happy rabbiting on about Tony Mio's defeat in the final of the 1984 Lada Classic as we would Neil Robertson's cure action. I'm not convinced it will catch on as a term, but who knows? Perhaps someone could design a badge so we can easily identify each other. I'm also a proud member of another club. I've listened to all 100 episodes of the Talkie Snooker podcast, and I'm pretty sure I've never missed a snooker scene podcast. Perhaps us 100 percenters could have a nickname and annual meetups too, and maybe a badge. On a personal level, 2022 has been my best ever year at snooker, even though I'm now in my 50s. I finally made my first century, and I now have nine of them, the latest on table 25 at the Northern Snooker Centre last week. Once again, thanks for all you guys do. You're an absolute integral part of my weekly routine. And I wish you all a very happy Christmas. Very much same to you and happy new year as well when it comes to Dave. Well, actually, there's a lot of humour there, of course. But on a serious note, I didn't realise until I got this how many he's actually made centuries-wise, Phil. And we remember very well when he made his first and what great breakthrough that was. To actually make that many, that just shows what, you know, once you get that breakthrough, how many you can make. We should say hats off to Dave for that. Yeah, great, great effort. I had a little knock with him when in our matchup in Leeds, uh, and he is considerably better than I am. And yeah, that's uh, as you have to be to make those kind of breaks. Yeah, it's a brilliant effort. Uh, I know he loves going down there, and it's a great place to to go and play and spend some time. So yeah, d- warm congratulations because it's thoroughly deserved. Take some hard work to do that. <laughs> you you struck up a very nice friendship with with, with Dave Dave Hendon. I mean, you, you, I think you're brilliant together. Are you going to invite him back on one day, perhaps, and wrap it away about the game? Uh, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> okay. but, but, no, yes, absolutely. I mean, yeah, very entertaining. He came on and read his diaries, which were very entertaining. Um, yeah, and, and listen, well done to him. I think he, he, in amongst all that, though, he identifies something that I've definitely noticed, which is that lockdown obviously was a horrible time, but it definitely did drive more people back to snooker. Um, 
a lot of people were stuck at home and a lot of snooker was on TV, which is obviously credit to World Snooker for getting it on. Um, and then the World Championship that was in the, in, in the summer, I know, had a, had a huge audience. And people have stuck with it, which is interesting, I think. A lot of people have said to me, they used to watch snooker, they drifted away, and now they've come back and they've been reminded what a great sport it is. And a few people have actually said, they couldn't believe it's the same people playing. You know, they remember Ronnie. <laughs> they remember Ronnie as a 21-year-old. They've tuned in innocently to watch, oh, it's still going. But, you know, didn't kind of appreciate it. Um, so, so yeah, get get those badges, uh, get those badges made by all means. <laughs> I don't remember where I heard it now. It might be someone on your, one of your correspondents or somewhere, Dave. Someone's always making a joke about that, saying, oh, no, no, this is an old match. You know, they're putting on the match from now. I don't you put on an old match. It's 10, 15 years ago. Oh, no, wait a minute. This is still... Yes, you're right. I saw that. that was Gary Moss on Twitter. He, he'd asked for it to be put on in the pub and he overheard someone next to him saying, Oh, this must be old one, Ronnie O'Sullivan's on. And I think mm-hmm. it was a husband. So I think he is still playing, actually. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, you're right about lockdown. I've said it before and I'll never stop saying it really. But that Championship League, that first one that came back, I'll always remember as I think a genuinely quite moving sporting event. Football hadn't come back. The Premier League had not come back. That came back in about the middle of the month of June 2020. I think on the first, sometimes we, we, we tend to say we were the first. Actually, we, we were the joint first because other sports did come back on the first of that month, horse racing and greyhound racing among them. But we were certainly joint first in snooker, if I can say we rather grandly. And that event, I know you were at, Dave, and so was mm-hmm. Phil Yates. And I mean... I remember quizzing you when I went to Milton Keynes for a later event, I think the English Open last season, just what that was like. And again, I've had this discussion at home, actually, with different people, that I think too much of the pandemic is forgotten, but then other people, quite wise people, have said, we don't want to bloody remember it. That's why we want to move (laughs) on, which is sort of a fair call. But I I don't think any of us that that were absent from there will quite realise how restrictive everything was during that weekday. And it was quite interesting to tune in and watch it. it was Neil Folds was at home. This was us for us as viewers with the makeshift ITV sort of branding around him. And it was um, Neil Folds' dog was walking around while he was on the air. It was so um, sort of special in many ways. Sad, but special. It, it was great that it was on. We had to, I mean, it was amazing, though, what you sort of accept. I mean, we had to go there two days early because we had to get tested. And you, you got your test. You had to socially distance queuing up for the test. You then get you, you already got your key. You go to your hotel room, and I remember saying, you know, when when do we get the results? This time tomorrow. So you've got to sit in that room all day. Mm. <laughs> Can't go anywhere. Wait for your results. Thankfully, they were cleared. Then we were allowed into the commentary area. But, I mean, Ken Doherty, very innocently, because obviously Milton Keynes is where they have a football uh, ground there as well, MK Dons. And he, he likes sort of Instagram stories and all that, Ken. And he, he very innocently just went, not on the pitch, but just sort of the little door where you could overlook the pitch, took a, a photograph, but he'd broken the bubble. So he was he had to spend a day and a half in his room in quarantine. Um he's supposed to be commentating with us. We sort of saw him like two days later. <laughs> he emerged finally. Um yeah it was um it was a bizarre time. There was one occasion because Jill Douglas for ITV was presenting it again from home and her internet went down. Um and there was there was some panic and there was some suggestion I would have to introduce one of the programmes, which would have been an absolute nightmare for everybody, not least the viewers. Thankfully, that didn't happen. Um, but, yeah, it was it was kind of crazy. But, but it's interesting how ingenious certainly the TV guys were, that they just made it work. You you would never plan to do a production like that. The PA, who um, Jane, who 
does all the counting to breaks and everything. She was at home in York, I believe, just in a living room, you know. I mean, normally they're in a gallery, that's all together, and but everyone was where they were. It kind of worked. And and yeah, it was it was listen, we're all glad to be there. You look back, you think, how did we stomach it? I mean, every morning they knock on your door at eight o'clock, leave your breakfast out. Whether you wanted it or not, your breakfast is outside. It's like being in prison almost. <laughs> but you just accepted it because what was the alternative? That we had nothing. Um, yeah, I, I don't think anyone would have gone back to it, put it that way. But it was, yeah, that. but what it did do, it established that snooker could run safely. And therefore, for the rest of the season, we did. Mainly in long games, have tournament after tournament in the bubble. And hopefully entertain people who were sat at home and, you know, a lot of players still managed to earn a good living in that time. Obviously, Judd Trump won a lot of tournaments in that time. And and we we you sort of kept calm and carried on, really, in the best sort of tradition. Was that that English Open that Nick mentioned as well? Um, so after, there were still some restrictions, I think, but obviously nothing like that. And uh, it was, I mean, so quickly we forget what was going on beforehand in those sort of odd times, because... I was in the in the hotel bar when one of those sort of great hotel bars, really, when there's lots of players milling around and uh, fans and everything, everyone's chatting. It's and uh, pretty thick moment for me, really. I said to someone, "But at least you had this, you know. It can't have been that bad." And someone was like, "Well, obviously we didn't. This none of these uh, sort of communal areas are open ever. You know, you as you said, it was a bit like being in prison. You're just locked in your room well, for an awful bar, long time. That bar." The red dot bar in the hotel was the testing area. <laughs> yeah. So literally, so literally, it was shut because the nurses were there and the screens were up, and you got to, you got your, the thing stuck up your nose to see if you had COVID. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's 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 amazing how not that long ago it was really because it, as you say, it seems like now. How could you stomach it? But yeah, you just get on with it, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, it was amazing. All, all the events I went to, I didn't do very early snooker, but I did the Derby, certainly Challenge Cup final at Wembley comes to mind. And particularly at Wembley, it was like going into sort of makeshift hospital ward first and you'd, you'd get tested. You're like, this is extraordinary, just going to a sporting event. It was, yeah, in, in every sense, remarkable times. We've got one left, James Irwin, Phil. Do you want to do the honours with this one? Love to. Uh, James Owen on email. Hi, Dave, Nick and Phil. Glad you are revisiting the joint edition of the pod. Great idea once a year. I just wanted to highlight an email I sent to Dave back in April. I think it got lost amongst the World Championship qualifiers and build-up with the idea of a printable wall chart for the World, chart for the world Championship. My own Blue Peter-style makeshift version has become an annual tradition in my house and adds to the fun of following the tournament. Surely WST are missing a trick here, especially for engaging younger fans. That aside, thanks to all of you for another year of essential snooker chat have a great christmas and look forward to next year's pods james thank you very much james yeah i don't mind that as an idea i know it is like when the world cup we've just had it's quite a big thing isn't it and print that out um i like the idea of sort of you know kids would like to do it why not um it can't be that hard to knock up as like a downloadable thing on uh wst website well not a bad idea have you, yeah, but you say that. Have you not seen the way they present their draws on those on those horrible PDFs? Yeah. Yes, I have. Yeah, <laughs> that is so, one of my bugbears, really. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, I often, think. Sorry, I just I quite often when when they're done, I will sometimes write those up for Metro just so they're easier to read for people. But mm. even to write them up into a better format, they're done so badly in those PDFs. It's hard to just you can't copy and paste or anything. Yeah, it's uh, the World Championship one is especially galling when you're looking at the PDF and the format yeah. thing and sort of transposing them across, it's, 
bad. It is bad, and 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 I, I was actually um, with, with Joe Johnson the other day. Uh, he was trying to look up. We we weren't commentating, but we were having something to eat, and he was looking up the scores. And you realise how many clicks you have to go through just to find the score on on the Wilson. Because this is not what we were asked about. I know, but yeah, I mean the wall, the, wall, the wall chart sounds a good idea. I suppose it's just someone's got to think of doing it. I guess. And to be fair to the guys on the media side at Will Snooker. Obviously, they can't do that until after the qualifying, and they're so busy for those few days doing all the other stuff. It'll be another thing to do. Yeah. I always say there aren't enough of them. You know, there are more people involved. Someone could do it, but there's ten other things they'd be doing at the same time. I suppose. Yeah, I mean, Phil, I know you uh, on Metro Online, and certainly I for the paper, and and for many places I've worked, will work on football, and there's actually something massive about the wall chart, isn't there? Uh, you know, it, it, even when we do supplements for the World Cup, you know, just gone, it's like, well, we've got this, you know, guide to the top players and the groups, and uh, we've got this piece from that colonist and that, but we've got the wall chart. That's the big thing. And it, it, that, that's how big they are, actually, for a lot of fans. I don't know if we invest too much in them. I don't know, but they're, they're essential for tournaments. They really are. I remember them when I was growing up, certainly as a boy, having them on the wall and, and listen, many adults do. It. I don't think I do it myself now, but I can see the appeal of them certainly. So I think any, anything that anything that adds to that that tournament, the better. Just I know. Talk- what, sorry, one last thing on that. I know what they did, and I don't know if you've done it the last couple of years, but Metro Online, they used to have um, sort of a blueprint which they just update every year for the Grand National, which is a print off sweepstake, and then you could do office sweepstakes wherever you are. That'd be great to do for the World Championship if we could encourage people to do that because that gives people, you know, people stick their quid in who wouldn't normally watch the snooker, but, you know, they've been given Kyron Wilson. So they'll be asking for a couple of weeks, oh, how's he getting on? You know, it creates a bit of interest, so that'd be nice to do. Yeah. And actually, to be fair, you know, the Grand National is about 40 horses, isn't it? You know, obviously, World Championship is 32, comes to the Crucible. But you get you're going to get more players with good chances in that than you are horses in the national, or you know maybe even teams at the World Cup if you do a sweepstake for that. This just comes to my mind now. This genuinely wasn't something I've been building up to. Linked to this, I think we should make the draw a bit more special. I say we collectively, as if you know I've got any investment in it. I mean, I've got investment in it, whether I've got any say in it. Um, I know it's streamed, and, and listen. I don't think it's on TV and radio. Maybe they don't want it. I don't know. But there certainly have been times in my life when it has been on radio. I think it was even in the in the slot in grandstand after the football results for a few years. It's certainly been on the radio. I've heard it on on, on Five Live going back. I think I've heard it on Talk Sport as well. I, I think the draws are massive. I'm a huge draw person in sport, and I just think for a flagship event. Even if it was just on the you know BBC and then I play away or the website, I just think that is it the Thursday, isn't it? I think they do it. That should be a lot bigger than it is. It's a bit of an afterthought. Oh, the draws come out here. It is, and I don't know. I just think we need to maximise that event a little bit more. Am I on the right lines there, Phil? I don't see why not. I think they do do a good job with what they what they're given. You know, it's it's made a thing of for snooker fans to tune in and online and. Uh, yeah, they go over to, well, they did anyway. They were doing it in the Betfred offices, isn't there? And uh, uh, Rob Walker does it. And it was it was very good. But yeah, it would be better if it was on TV, <laughs> no doubt. Um, I don't know why the BBC wouldn't, you know, it doesn't take very long. 
um, you know, BBC Breakfast on every morning, isn't it? And they have all sorts of random garbage on there. So I don't know why <laughs> they couldn't have five or ten minutes of doing the snooker draw. Um, and, you know, it's for their own benefit, isn't it? That be that gets a huge viewership of people that wouldn't necessarily be thinking about the snooker, but they might see some names there and think, yeah, we'll tune in later. So it makes sense to me. The problem is the BBC is so big and sprawling, you need the right person to make the decision. Um, my prediction is, and I'd be not quite going to put money on it because no one's betting on it, but my prediction is the draw this coming up to the World Championship this year will be on Five Live. Why? Because I overheard Will Snooker asking. That was good journalism for me. I wasn't going to let you just say it without. (laughs) I overheard them saying any chance, and and their representative, who we all know, said I will do my best. So Mm. um, yeah, but which is good. They they used to have it. There was one year where they clocked it up. They pulled the same name out twice. That might have been why they sort of retrieved. (laughs) Listen, the BBC have got so many outlets. At the very least, they could do it on the website. You know, mm. that, that that should be the minimum, really. Um, so, yeah, uh, I, there's no real excuse not to. But hopefully if it's on the radio. That's actually quite high profile. They have a lot of listeners. I should say I've had two emails come in while we've been talking. So I'm very quickly, if it's okay, just going to read them out. Absolutely. Um, hot off the press. Just check for any vitriol or libels. No? Unfortunately, there are, there's, there's neither. Uh, right, here we are. <laughs> now, this is from Richard Adamfi. He says, as you mentioned on your last podcast, best of sevens are not a lottery and the top players tend to win. I did say this because I've heard people sort of talk about best of sevens like it's the shootout. They're proper, mm. They are actually proper matches. So, you know, and we've seen, we saw last week, the, when, we, when you get to the quarterfinals of the home nations, there's lots of big hitters still in it. Anyway, he says, uh, many people still seem to believe that myth. So, so I thought I would do some analysis. Now, listen to this. He said, I ran a computer sim- I ran computer simulations playing a million best of sevens, best of nines, and best of seventeens. Some people just waste their lives. Look, look at all of this. He said, he said, no, I'm joking, joking. He said, I ran it originally assuming that the better player has a 70% chance of winning any single frame and then again assuming an 80% chance. Stay with this. It's like tomorrow's world. Uh, he said, assuming a 70% chance of the better player winning one frame the better player has an 87, 87% chance of winning a best of seven compared to 90% of winning a best of nine, so hardly any difference. They have a 95% chance of winning a best of 17. One more paragraph. He said, assuming an 80% chance of the better player winning one frame, the better player has a 97% chance of winning a best of seven and 98% chance of winning a best of nine with a 99.5% chance of winning a best of 17. So what he's saying is basically, I was right. The best of sevens are not lotteries. I think one thing that is significant about them, and thanks, Richard, for that, by the way, one thing that is significant about them is there's no intervals. And intervals, I think definitely that that match with um, the semi-final with Selby and Robertson, I think the interval did play some sort of part in that. Neil was, was not going to miss, I think, if they'd have just carried on. He was so focused and... You know, Selby played great after that, but something did change at the interval. Obviously, you don't get that in the best of seven. Um, but uh, have you any views on the best of sevens? Well, yeah, I think the, the word lottery is just a completely the wrong word. You can say that you, the chances of upsets might be increased the shorter the match. I think that's right, even if that research says it's only marginally. Um, but yeah, the lottery, lottery is, a, is a daft thing to say. Um, but what, what I was thinking about this the other day, I'm not sure why I was thinking about this, but. Um, when the home nations came in, we did get 
surprise winners, didn't we? Like that first season was when Liang Wenbao and Mark King won, and to a lesser extent, surprises being Fu and Bingham. Um, and then there obviously have been surprises since Jordan Brown, the obvious one, but it's, it's pretty much been heavy hitters since then. But I don't know why, when they first came in, maybe people took a bit of getting used to because that, that was when it was more sort of open and surprising results. But then it seemed to have redressed the balance pretty quickly after that first year. It may be that people just got used to playing the best sevens after that. Um, maybe it was, maybe it did feel different for the players and we can't speak for them. Um, and maybe a shorter distance feels like it's not as important. Um, but I think they've just got used to it. Judd Trump, I mean, he said it himself. He's got an incredible record in best of sevens. Um, I think he's only lost 10 in the home nations. And he's won lots of other tournaments as well. Gibraltar won a couple of times, which is all best of seven. Um, why that is, who knows? But, you know, I suppose it helps being really good to start with. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I was going to say Judd Trump. He won all those matches in a row. I mean, I know, I know that was during his golden spell generally in all tournaments, but that says a lot. I think it's, it's quite literally a numbers game. I, I mean, we saw in the British Open when it was best of five. Now, that was more... Quote unquote lottery. Again, lottery is probably not quite the right word, but I think best of seven pushes it up a little bit. Um, I've got Graham Dot in my head, actually. He'll say it's not a proper match. I've heard him say that, whereas he'll say best of 11 pretty much is getting towards a proper match. But of course, he loves long format snooker, as many many players do. Um, But no, I think that's too strong because we just, you know, you're right, that first season seemed to give credence to the idea that best of sevens would sort of transform the game as well, you know, in a sense, and give us loads of different winners. It hasn't been the case. It's been mostly big hitters all the way. You know, well, I think, that, yeah. Sorry, Nick. I was going to say, I think the point is, whatever the distance, the same player who, in a best of 11, when they get to five, will feel the pressure, in a best of seven, will feel the pressure when they get to three. It's, it's not actually about the length. It's about, can you get over the line? Um and the evidence suggests there's not really that many more upsets under that format. Um, I'll just read this other email, out actually, because uh, it's about the English Open. Um, so torn from today's headlines. Uh, Craig, Craig in, in Essex. So he's been to the event. Uh, I just wanted to send you a few lines, having very recently discovered this great podcast. Uh, I've always had a passing interest in snooker, but this has increased massively in the past few months to the point that myself and my family attended the English Open this week in Brentwood. First live snooker with the majority of us. We all live in Essex and were delighted when I checked the WST website for tickets to discover a ranking tournament big hell just half an hour of the road from us. I won't mention too much on the venue uh, as you covered that. I did a podcast uh, earlier on a short one. We had a few, few correspondent, But he said, uh, it was such a delight to be able to watch near on 10 hours of top quality snooker for about 20 quid each. What great value. We attended all down Wednesday managed to catch the majority of Ronnie's win the rest of the afternoon and, of course, all the evening, including Allen and Ding's mammoth match, Trump, Selby and Robertson cruising through in style. The other tables in the distance, we could see amongst others, Higgins and Wilson. I was slightly gutted one of my favourite players, Mark Williams, didn't play on the Wednesday. Sod's law, as it is, as it is, he played and won twice the following day. And not to mention the 147 the day after that. There'll be the opportunity to see him and all the others, I'm sure, as we all thoroughly enjoyed our day. And as we said, we'd love to attend future tournaments, hopefully here in Essex, going by how popular it seemed to be, how many of the players said they enjoyed the week. For us, the day could not have been better. The staff were fantastic. Shout out to the two ladies on the merchandise stall who were battling colds. The facilities we felt were okay for us. Minor improvements could have been made, but they didn't impact our enjoyment of the event. And above all, the snooker did not, did not disappoint. 
Uh, and he goes on to say uh, a lot more. I could say, but uh, don't wanna, don't wanna, don't want to take up half the podcast. Oh, we're just getting started, aren't we? Um, yeah, but that's good to know. That's good to know because before Brentwood, I heard a lot of bad things about the venue, and I don't think it was necessarily the best venue ever. But it was full most of the time. It seemed that catchment area is great. Now it may be a better venue in Essex, which they may find for next year. Who knows? But the fact is, it was well supported. That, that's the, unarguable. Yeah, and that, that's massive. Mark's obviously spoke about that afterwards uh, last night to Phil Seymour, I think it was, doing the World Snooker interview. Um, and he said, yeah, no one's going to claim it's the, the best venue on earth, um, but he would rather have a slightly below par venue that's full than, you know, a, a glitzy, glamorous one that isn't. Um so yeah, I thought that was that was great and very different to most home nation tournaments. Even the good ones, um, usually the crowds aren't great at the start, um, but it seems to be really well attended all the way through. And that's it. Just looks way better on TV if you're flicking on the snooker um, and you see that there are twenty people there. It's not a great look for the sport. So they don't know from the TV audience what the rest of the venue looks like or anything, but they see a full crowd, and that's that's good news. Yeah, one thing I jotted down, I know I mentioned the British Open being a lottery, but we still had the Mark Williams-Gary Wilson final. So yeah. it was one of the great players of all time against the, you know, a guy, Gary Wilson, that's obviously just now won a ranking event, but he's been in a world semi and other finals as well. But, when, you know, and so uh, I think it's fair to say that, you know, big big hitters got through to the the latter stages of that event as well. What, what am I eating here? Is it it's- humble pie? <laughs> Phil, you know me too well. It's actually a mince pie, and thank you. I'm actually staying down in Broadstairs for a couple of days, and the, the hotel here uh, have provided me with these beautiful mince pies that they gave these to me last night uh, in preparation for this. It is, of course, symbolically humble pie. I have been a bit mean about Brentwood, and I have to take a lot of it back because the crowds are excellent. People seem to enjoy it, and uh, shout out for the piece you wrote for Eurosport um, on the the strong hotbed of the game that is Essex, Dave, and maybe it was, it was indeed about time that an event went there and it seemed to be a big success. So the home nations has generally been a success, actually, isn't it? You know, we're often sort of saying, oh, what doesn't work in snooker? You know, the, these tournaments have worked. And OK, we, we, had a good, we had a good start with the Welsh, that's now three decades old, but they've all got their distinct kind of flavour. We need to build the English and Scottish up now. I think, you know, whatever we do with the English. I think we would need to try and stick it somewhere now and, and keep it there so it gets that identity. I know we say this a lot, Phil, but if we can just, you know, nail somewhere, because it's been Manchester, Barnsley, MK, Crawley, all over the place, you know, wherever it is, let's sort of maintain it there, eh? Yeah, definitely. And if Brentwood works, the Brentwood works. I mean, I don't know. They, they had problems. They did have some problems in the heating, not working in this cold snap was uh, looked bad for everyone. Uh, and there, were, there was more than one alarm going off, but yeah, these things that could get ironed out quite, quite easily. Um, and yeah, if it, if that's going to be a sold out venue all the time, then uh, it could be there or somewhere or somewhere else near there. Definitely. Because it's nice with the, with it being the Steve Davis trophy as well. It's uh, in his homeland, but yeah, we've been calling that for a while. Um, hopefully the Scottish days in Edinburgh, that seemed to be really good. Um we know about the Northern Ireland Open, but Wales has moved around a bit, but it seems like you can't go too wrong with Wales, but people do think this is a bad move, moving it up north. Um, but, yeah, we'll see We'll see what happens. I don't know what the contract you'll know more than this, Dave. Um, is, is it Brentwood just for one year, or have we seen what's happening? I don't know about that. Um, I, I, I mean, obviously, Matchroom have such strong connections there. 
um, which obviously led to them them going there. I think you're right. I think it, you need to establish an identity for Tormund, and Northern Ireland has done that. You know, the waterfront people identify the Tormund with that venue. Um, the Welsh just start to move around a bit. Scotland, hopefully, as you say, will be in Edinburgh. I really like the Home Nations events. I think it, there's there's a great value in having an event like the Masters or the Tour Championship, where it's one table and it's just you know one match or two matches a day. The Masters, but it's good to have busy tournaments as well. It's good to have tournaments with lots of things happening and lots of players. The format I think could be looked at. This business of playing twice in one day when your opponents played once, I don't think that's yeah. quite right. But these are all things that maybe could be ironed out. But in general, I think they're really good additions to the circuit. And there's been so many great stories and great finals over the years of the Home Nations. Saw another one this week with Selby. Um, so, yeah, they, they're good tournaments. And, and, and a lot of people said, and we heard it there from our correspondent, great value for money. You can get a ticket for sort of 15, 20 quid and see basically on, on that first day the whole of the top 16. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty good. You know, you see all the star names. We're talking about you know, having Germany holding them over in that event, you see them all on, on the, on the first day. I mean, that's brilliant. Mm. No, it certainly is. Well, a little while ago, I said, you know, we're doing quite well for time, but you know what? We're, <laughs> we're, we are threatening, we are threatening to maybe do another three hour one. We, I think we've gone over the two hour mark now and we got a bit to go still. We should say you are listening to a joint podcast Christmas special with David Hendon from Snooker Scene, Phil Hagen, Nick Metcalf from the Talking Snooker podcast. Maybe we should look ahead then because, um, you know, it's that time of year when we we are thinking, of course, about uh, about what's to come, the, the year of snooker in 2023. I think my the one that comes to mind for me is more variety in locations if possible. And part of that will be China. God willing, we go back there in the autumn to come. Who knows? You know, we're in a funny situation in the UK, aren't we? Because if, to all intents and purposes, the pandemic in our lives is over, really. We have hardly any restrictions. I mean, I've just been to Qatar. I didn't have to do anything even to go there. You know, even travel is almost back to normal now. That's not the case in parts of the world. You know, and as far as I'm aware, unless I've missed it, the pandemic has certainly not have been officially declared as over by any means. The COVID rates are still very high. So we have to remember that. And they've always been very stringent in parts of the, the Far East, China very much included. So that may be a factor in that. But, you know, the other thing to say in the UK, we are so spoiled and we see so many tournaments here, but it, it can't just carry on that tournaments are dominated here. And the pandemic is a factor, of course, but look how glowingly we all spoke about Turkey. None of us were there, but we all appreciate the value of that. And I should say, actually, it just comes to my mind while talking, a shout-out for the women's snooker tour, getting that event on in Seattle. And wouldn't it be lovely if we had a main tour event in the United States or North America, let's say Canada as well. Obviously, there's a great tradition going back of snooker in Canada. Listen... Very easy to sit here in this chair and say, we want this, we want that. There are loads of practical implications and uh, and what have you to, to get that happening. But I think for 2023 and indeed beyond, I think, uh, you know, I, I, there's, there would be a desire, I think, certainly in me as a, as a, as a, as a snooker a pundit and, and great lover of this sport, that we move away from being quite insular and focused on what's happening in, in these islands. That's mine, Dave. What about you? <laughs> 
Well, no, I mean, I think, yeah, I think it's actually come to a head what you're saying. I don't think that World Snooker's policy in terms of China can remain, let's just hope we go back there. And if we don't, we don't have a plan B to do, you know, to go anywhere else. There needs to be now a contingency in place. It's out of their hands in terms of when they go back to China. Let's hope it is next year. It may not be. You know, the situation there seems to be quite confused. They they cha- they sort of opened up a bit more, but now I, I know they, they they were saying in the news just this morning that they're having, having another wave of COVID. But the players need tournaments. Fans need tournaments. The game needs to be seen against other sports to be quite vibrant. There was quite a few gaps early early season that they blocked out, potentially go to China that couldn't. The plan can't just be, let's hope we go back there. There needs to be something in the background. Now, obviously, that that will mean tournaments elsewhere, and, and they cost money, and they, they take a lot of planning. Um, but we don't know the situation in China. It might be years yet. We don't know until we go back there. It was such a big part of the, of the circuit. Now that it's gone and we don't know when it's going to come back, there's a hole there that needs to be filled. And even if it's a smaller tournaments for smaller money, at least there'll still be action. There'll be a chance to play, a chance to watch. And I think that's going to come to a head this year. I don't think it's good enough now to just say, we hope we can go back there. There needs to be a firm plan if we can't. What is plan B? I don't think there is one. I don't think there needs to be one. Yeah, and I think we're all sort of singing from the same hymn sheet here. I think this season is, is the last season where they can publish the calendar and it looks similar to how it has done the last couple of years because it's three years now since we've been in China, wasn't it? It was the back end of 2019, the last one there. Um, and we all understand the problems, of course. Um, but I would say three years is long enough to come up with a, another plan. And as you say, look, no one's expecting to just rustle up um, a massive tournament uh, somewhere that we've never been before. It's not as easy as that, but something players need to play in something uh, for some money, um, ideally in, in new places, but you know, <laughs> wherever we can get them really. And there are signs, you know, Hong Kong seem to be a success. We're going back. Thailand is back on the, back on the agenda of the six reds. You know, people would love to go in there, play a, uh, well, I was going to say proper tournament there, but I suppose I can say proper tournament there. Um, Wherever, really. I don't think people are fussy. <laughs> they just want to go out uh, and play matches and uh, see new places, hopefully, but um, just something. But, yeah, I think, um, you know, there's not going to be a revolution. I think people aren't going to be marching through the streets. But if if the calendar got published again and it was the same vibe as this season, people would be very, very disappointed, I think. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, th- there have been new tournaments. You know, British Open was a new event. The Turkish mm-hmm. Masters was a new event. Um but I just think this sort of, as I, just, I'm going to repeat myself, I know, but just to sort of say we're confident we can go back to China, we may not be able to. We don't know. And, you know, and if we can't, then what is the, what is the alternative other than just not having any events at all? You know, so I think I'm sure it is being looked at. I'm sure it is. Um, and, and it's not as easy as, you know, as our friends on Twitter might, might think just to summon up a tournament. But I think it's coming to a head now. I think it's coming to a head. And I think next season we need to start to see something change, really. Yeah. If one thing that came to mind while I was saying that, and you mentioned it, Phil, of course, you know, this wasn't strictly going to be a review of the year, but maybe one thing we should reflect on it is that event in Hong Kong. I mean, that was actually breathtaking, wasn't it? I mean, the crowds there, extraordinary. And one thing I have to say, we've all, I've certainly always said that, if you were to have massive crowds in 
snooker. It would change the fan experience uh, profoundly because there's always been an unwritten contract almost that you have a view of the table with your own eyes. Well, we always thought well, that takes it away. But by all accounts, first-hand experience and people look at that mammoth arena in Hong Kong, you still did get a bit of a view of the table. Okay, you were helped by the big screens. But, you know, it just shows, you know, we maybe shouldn't set these frontiers, Phil, because that was that was extraordinary, wasn't it? And, you know, let's hope, you know, there's a difference between <laughs> mainland China and Hong Kong. Clearly, Hong Kong's generally more open, uh, maybe not as much as we'd like it to be. But, but you know, restrictions have generally not been quite as harsh there, I think, over time. So there's a chance we could go back there again. But that was just showed that, you know, we maybe shouldn't put limits on crowds in the future because that was quite something. Yeah, I'm sure it broadened some ambitions. I think that's come up in this whole sort of, if you left the Crucible, where would you go? And, you know, what, how big a venue could you uh, be looking at? Um, and I know people are making up numbers, really, aren't they? But people are talking about 3,000 maybe would be about as big as you'd want to go. So they uh, smashed that out of the park and uh, it shows what can be done. Um, of course, you need sort of perfect storms for those kind of events to come around. Obviously, if you just held a snooker tournament in a 9,000-seat venue, even every year, then your odds of selling it out would diminish. Um, But, yeah, hopefully it sort of opened eyes to where we could be looking to play uh, in terms of size of arena and uh, showed the the interest, which people know is there in that part of the world. But, um, you know, it's not been diminished at all over time. Absolutely. Yeah, no, it, it really was. It really was something else. That, again, you commentated on some special events this year. Dave, that was, was that a, a, a different, could you, did you have to do anything differently because the noises were coming back were so extraordinary, the cheers or, or you know, how did you? you no, know, I mean, what, I, I, hopefully that spoke for itself. One of my pet hates in, and I'm, and I'm sure I've done this as well, by the way, but one of my pet hates, hates in sports coverage is when you keep being told what a great atmosphere it is. If it's a great atmosphere, you should be able to see that yourself. You shouldn't mm. need to be told. No one needed to say yet for the World Cup final yesterday, this is a great atmosphere, you know, it just was. Um, but yeah, that was an extraordinary event. But it, as Phil said, really, it was a perfect storm. It was the top six in the world plus two Hong Kong players in Asia where they hadn't had a tournament for three years. Um, and, you know, so it's the best of the best. One table, there were a lot of overreactions from people saying we must have a ranking event there. That might not work there on a, on a Wednesday after, on a Wednesday afternoon watching a couple of low ranked players you're not going to get 9,000 people clearly um, it, it worked for that event hopefully it'll be back on next year it looked fantastic it came across really well um, but also it did feel a little bit more like a sort of exhibition in a way than a, I think the pockets were quite generous I have to say um, it was a great spectacle um, and good for the game yes but you couldn't necessarily just rep like you say, Nick. You couldn't just necessarily just replicate that by, you know, booking in Birmingham like a big venue and expecting everyone to come. It doesn't quite work like that. Um, one key thing about it was, and this goes back to Brentwood final. There was no alcohol on sale, <laughs> so there was a big crowd, but they were well behaved. So one bloke was thrown out. Um, Neil Fold said because he didn't like the misrule. Well, that was never confirmed, um, but. <laughs> but, but um, but yeah, but basically, they it wasn't quite like in the UK. It wouldn't quite be like that, you know. We've seen before with big crowds that you know they have a drink and so on. So it was a different vibe. It's a great tournament, though. I I really enjoyed it. I, I don't think I realised that about the alcohol. Maybe I did, and I forgot. That. I don't think I did. But tell you what, it's quite relevant 
because of course there was there was actually alcohol in Qatar. I'm going to correct myself there. There was very little alcohol, and you had to go and find it. It was in certain hotels, certain places in Qatar, um, but it, it certainly wasn't widely sold or available. And a lot of people asked, and not everybody, you know, maybe it took away some of that fun and chaos that you get at tournaments. I mean, there's, there was enough of that, but maybe it took away a bit of it. <laughs> but certainly some people are saying, and, uh, you know, I've seen it very widely written and reported, that they felt there was something a bit safer and a bit happier generally and a bit more content about this World Cup. Maybe we shouldn't go down the route of, of alcohol too much, but I didn't know that about, about Hong Kong, uh, uh, Phil, did you? <laughs> I think I'm in the same boat as you. If I had, if I did realise it, I'd forgotten it. But yeah, I remember the one bloke getting kicked out, but that was because it stood out, and uh, you know, just with that vast amount of people just keeping quiet and stuff, um, was very impressive. And that sort of all makes sense that everyone was nice and uh, sober and relaxed and enjoying themselves. But yeah, it was great, um, great stories. I, Williams flying in at last minute was one of the more entertaining bits of the whole season, really so far. Um, <laughs> he played brilliantly, um, considering his last-minute trip. But yeah, it was, uh, uh, yeah, it was brilliant. It was amazing. It, it was sort of, it seemed like a bit of a gamble, really, doing uh, in that in that setting. But uh, it all paid off. I would love to see more events. I mean, I wrote this after it in big cities around the world. You imagine one in New York, New York or Sydney, yeah. Tokyo. The problem is, though, they would just be for the top players. There would be more events mm. for because that's how you'd sell them. You would have just the, the top players, I suppose. There is also a responsibility, of course, to the rest of the players on tour. And I, I think there is an argument to not necessarily bring back the PTCs, but have something at a lower level that at least gives people a chance to play, stay in touch, earn money. Um, but again, someone's got to pay for it. And, it, it, you know, it's not it's not just as simple as saying, you know, let, let's... Because they cost money. You know, it costs a lot of money, staging costs, and got to pay all the referees and all that sort of thing before even prize money. Um but there's just a feeling there needs to be a little bit more for those guys as well. I think the top players are well served, um, but there's a tour of 131 players, I think, and maybe a little bit more needs to be done for them. Yeah, I think PTCs or um, however you would call them. Now, again, this is this is almost a useless comparison because sport's so different and the logistics of the sport are so different. But on, in the PDC, the darts, they've got 30 players' championships over the season. And they're just uh, no audience behind closed doors events. And I think the winner gets 12 grand. Um, and yeah, there's 30 of them over the year. And, you know, obviously Stuka couldn't do that because you can't fit the players in. You can't play them in a day. But if it, even if it was half of that, uh, even if it was 10 instead of 30, imagine how, well, I was going to say, imagine much happier the lower ranked players would be. They'd still find things to moan about, but they'd be, <laughs> it would be an awful lot better than it is now, just sort of these low-key. They stream them, so there is earning opportunities. But um, I remember that's come up a couple of times on your podcast, Dave, about the uh, possibility in the past that World Snooker or the WPSA would have bought a specific venue. And that's, mm-hmm. that's what it would have been perfect for, just these behind-closed doors, everyone in, low prize money, but you turn up, every couple of weeks to play one of those. Now you could stream them. So, you know, if we had one of those, it would be absolutely ideal. But, um, yeah, that's what they do in, in the darts. And it, it just keeps the tour turning over and uh, gives everyone opportunities. And because there's so many, the top players playing, actually a lot of them, but not all of them. So there's a chance for different winners. Um, and, yeah, it's just it makes it more of a, I guess, a sustainable living more than anything. Well, yeah, and also, you you know, and, and it's, because players losing qualifiers, but there are players who 
might be sort of 60, 70 in the world, and they'll have like seven weeks between events. I mean, there's some guys now who won't play again, I guess, till the shootout, or they might be qualifying to get January. But it's it's very below the radar stuff. Um, and there's a perception, I think, that from them that the top players are looked after. And they're right, and they should be, because they sell the game, and they're, they're the people that TV want and, and that spectators want. But they, they shouldn't be the only players who looked after. There should also be... I guess a sort of safety net almost for some of the other guys. I mean, obviously we all want as much snoop as possible. Um, but maybe that years ago, and we're going back 30 odd years now, uh, the old WPBSA at the time, they did institute a few events um, for players. I'm going to say outside the top 32. I remember that because one of them was sponsored by favorite fried chicken. Now, <laughs> uh, I think Alex Higgins might've won it because he dropped down the rankings. But anyway, so the favorite fried chicken open or whatever it was, um, that was like, you know, five grand the winner or something, but it, it got people playing. Um, so maybe chicken cottage or someone could step in and, and you know, maybe <laughs> help us out. <laughs> <laughs> brilliant stuff. Brilliant stuff. Well, Chaps, unless you've got anything absolutely massive that you want to get off your chest, I mean, we, we, we've been going so long. I know, Dave, you you, you mentioned that we should maybe uh, talk away from snooker as well. Mm. Talk about some of our sort of highlights of the year, perhaps, and some of our recommendations like we did last year. I think that would be quite a nice nice way to finish. One thing that I that really stri- strikes me, and again, it's been hit home by this World Cup final. That I remember this year as in an era where our lives are dominated by streaming and we're, we're very much the masters of our own remote control. Now we, you know, we can choose what we want any day and night really. But even amid that, that, um, you know, development in our lives, this has been a year of mass audience, you know, big, big public event television and watching. And I'm thinking about the world cup final we've just seen in Qatar I'm thinking about the women's Euros final. I think, what, 17 million, I think, watched on the BBC. Extraordinary audience, you know, national event territory. Uh, the the Platinum Jubilee that we saw in the summer, the death of the Queen, and, you know, whether you're a great lover of the royal family or a committee Republican, I think you, you'd have to say those images were, were, were quite something that we saw in the days after the Queen's funeral. Also, so Paul McCartney at Glastonbury, what an event that was that had, you know, millions of people watching until like midnight, one, two in the morning on the BBC. That was just a, an absolute epic, you know, one of the, you know, one of the best concerts I think any of us have probably ever seen in terms of well, certainly significant concerts anyway. And other, other events as well, other, other sort of big sporting moments and television moments. And that's something that always strikes me about this year. Um, I am a bit of an unashamed t- television addict, and I have to say, two of my all-time favourite shows actually came to an end in the last in this year of twenty twenty-two. Uh, Dexter, which had had a revival, and and uh, many people, I'm sure, listening will, will will enjoy that show. Dexter came back this time in the in the frozen north rather than in Miami, where he was for a lot of years, and that that show finished and finished well. I think it finished better than most people thought it, it did originally. Also, Better Call Saul. Uh, which I know, Dave, you're a fan of that of that universe, the Breaking Bad universe. Well, that that came to an end as well, and I, and I thought that was uh, something I miss enormously. I thought it was a beautifully acted and do- directed program and saga, really. Um, I really enjoyed the White Lotus again. Um, I think calling in Mike Smith, and that's another '80s throwback uh, 
uh, Dave, it's actually Mike Lee uh, that, that's um, the man that was spo- responsible for uh, the White Lotus. I didn't think it was quite as strong this second run, but boy, is it alluring. I mean, you can't get many more alluring shows on television than that. It's absolutely vibrant in every sense. I really enjoyed that. And I'm really looking forward to the return of Yellow Jackets. Now, I don't know if any of you have watched this. This is a uh, another big show on American television, only one season old. And I find it quite mysterious. I haven't brought the second one out yet because it seems to be losing quite a bit of momentum, I would say. But it's about a, a group of teenagers that have a plane crash and they get stranded in the wilderness for a period. And it's um, and you sort you see flashbacks to their modern life as well. And it, it's very well done. It's, it's, it's dark, it's pretty dark, but it's, uh, it's a big, big show. And I think it's only going to get stronger. I'm looking forward to that coming back in the months to come. I'm also a big audio person and uh, not to give you too big a head, Dave, of course your snooker scene podcast is uh, among those podcasts I listen to on an absolutely uh, regular, not to miss uh, basis. I also love uh, football podcasts like the Monday night club. I'm so into NFL now. So I love the around the NFL podcast and the NFL podcast, the athletic too. I think the athletic does great work actually across journalism generally. I've just started again, AA Gill's book, Poor Me, um, which I've, I've turned to a couple of times before, but I, I just found it a bit, a bit too loaded really, but it's a, it's a, it's an outstanding book about addiction. Um, very moving. AA Gill is a writer. I still miss enormously. Um, now, I'd never really go into politics much on here. He, he, he wouldn't really be on my side of the political divide, but I miss him enormously as a writer. I think he was unbelievable. Uh, and and that, that is a book that uh, I'm just starting to get into again and, uh, and, and, and I think we'll enjoy reading. May, 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 go, may go back to it in, indeed over this festive period. But that, that's a sort of few things from me. Um, I don't know which one of you two wants to go next, but, uh, but uh, maybe... maybe go ahead, Dave. Go, <laughs> Dave. Is it me? Okay. Um, TV only murders in the building. This is, um, it's actually about a podcast. It's uh, Steve Martin and Martin Short, and they live in an apartment building um, and there's a murder and they team up with a young woman to investigate it on a podcast. And it is so funny. Martin Short is an absolute genius, I think. He's really, really funny. There's two series. It's on Disney Plus. I'm not involved in the show. I'm not. I'm not. I don't get money for saying this. It's just very, very funny, and it's also a murder mystery at the same time. So if you like that sort of thing, it's. Um, I can recommend that. Uh, my favourite film of the year is a film called Banshees of Inisherin, which is a recent film uh, by Martin McDonagh. Uh, if you've seen In Bruges with Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson, it's the same actors, different, completely different characters. Um, it's set during the Irish Civil War. And they're on a small island. The, the war is raging on the mainland. And they play two friends. And the film starts, Colin Farrell, every afternoon they go to the pub together. And Colin Farrell goes around to Brendan Gleeson's and he's told by Brendan Gleeson, I don't want to be friends with you anymore. Um, and that's the whole story. It, it, it sort of goes from there and you find out why and the, the ramifications of it. Um, it's, it's a bit bleak, which I like. Uh, <laughs> um, but it's just so well... Bear, that, bear in mind, that is the only kind of story in it. It's so well developed from there. Um, and you you really, I was really riveted by it. Uh, it's called The Banshees of Inner Sheeran. I'm sure it'll be available somewhere on something. And you mentioned, Nick, um, Paul McCartney at Glastonbury. When I heard he was going to headline Glastonbury, I was determined not to watch it. I thought, you know, he's 80. It's going to be a bit embarrassing. Um, I don't actually want to hear him now. I've got the records. I can listen to them if I want to. But I did tune in 
And I absolutely loved it. I thought it was a really incredible thing. Obviously, he's supported by the band, which is which is, which is important to say as well. But firstly, obviously, he's got an incredible songbook. If you wrote out a list of songs he didn't do, <laughs> they would all be Stone Cold classics. But there's just something about the shared memory of the Beatles and that whole kind of... There's one thing I think about Britain is, you know, our history, we're still sort of debating and, and there's sort of people will talk about the good and the bad bits of our history. I think one thing we can't, nobody can deny is our cultural contribution to the world. You know, if you go from Chaucer to Shakespeare to Charles Dickens, the Beatles, all the music, you know, up to J.K. Rowling and modern day people like Stormzy and Adele and all, all these sort of cultural figures for what a very small country we've given to the world. And there are parts of the world that we will never go to where they know these Beatles records and almost sort of learn to speak English from them. Um, and the other thing to say about it is we don't pay enough respect to elderly people. He's 80, the guy, you know. He's got no right to have a good voice at that age. But clearly he's got an incredible spirit. Um, and the key thing about it was I didn't at any point check social media while I watched it. I just watched it and enjoyed it. I didn't want to be surrounded by the sort of, I'm sure the snark and the sort of cynicism that was around it. Um, or even people saying good things. I just wanted to experience it um, as it was sort of happening. Um, and I remember when I was very young, at, at, at infant school it would have been, we had to get up and sing Penny Lane for the parents. All their mothers came and they were all in tears. Not just because probably because we were really bad at singing, but there's something about that music, it's, it, as I say, it's like a shared memory. That's a song about him growing up in Liverpool, which we didn't do. But there's still something sort of evocative about it, even to them. I mean, we're going back a long time now, over 30 years, nearly 40 years, actually. Um, but there's just something about it. It's, it's a sort of thread through your life. So to see him, and probably, he'll probably never do that again, I would have thought, on that scale. To, to see him do that, from going from not wanting to watch it to actually thinking it was fantastic. It was just really good, I think. And, yeah, uh, you, you know, you can only do it if you've got that music, obviously, but um, it shows how it endures that even at that age. Because when he wrote these songs in his 20s, if you'd have said to him, you're going to be playing this when you're 80, he would have thought that was absurd. Um, but here we are, and I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, I was, I'm always sceptical about watching gigs online or anything on TV, but... They are always always are better than I think they're going to be. I think when you just, I think it's just a bit of a snobbery. It was like, well, it's not going to be as good as if you're there, but it's still very good. Uh, I was very lucky enough to get tickets for next year's Glastonbury, so I'm very much looking forward to that. Only Elton John uh, confirmed so far, but it'll be great, uh, and we'll see what else there is to come. Um, I felt this last year, and I'm going to feel like, again, I'm going to bring in not so much eyebrow stuff to this part of the conversation. I was actually, I'm not a big film guy anyway, but I was looking to see any new films I watched this year. And I'm pretty sure the only one that came out this year that I've seen was Jackass. So, <laughs> it was very enjoyable, but uh, uh, if you like that kind of thing, give it a watch. But yeah, it's not quite of the same level as Dave's, Dave's recommendations. Um I'm reading a very good book at the minute called The Taliban Cricket Club, which is a novel. It's not um, well, it's partly factual, but it's a novel about um, how cricket grew, uh, rose up in Afghanistan, specifically through women playing cricket, which is very interesting. So that's a little bit more uh, kudos to that one, I think. Um, TV-wise, again, I'm not a massive um, 
watch it. But what I've been absolutely loving recently, and I know it was a big thing, it's not what I normally would watch, but The Traitors. I don't know if anyone's seen any of it yet. I haven't seen it. I've heard a lot about it. I've heard a lot about it. I would not have thought to watch it, but um, my sister recommended it, and I was at her, so I put one on. And by the end of one, I was absolutely hooked. Um, It is sort of reality TV in a way, but it's a very interesting sort of how the human psyche works and how people judge each other. It's, uh, yeah, as I say, I never would have thought about it. So if you've seen adverts for it and thought, maybe not my kind of thing, but... um, yeah, I can't wait for the next one. I think it's finishing this week, but it's been very enjoyable. And uh, series-wise, I enjoyed the uh, the new Game of Thrones edition, The House of the Dragon. That was uh, I was a big fan of Game of Thrones, but it was sort of enough different to it, but with the in the same you know similarities and differences were enough there to make it feel like a new thing, uh, but still very enjoyable. And uh, podcast-wise, uh, we should definitely because they deserve it. Give the other snooker guys uh, a shout out the 147 podcast been a good addition as has framed and uh, I think we said we both said uh, before that it was a shame to see Talking Bulls finish this year but they did some really good work as well um, this time of year for the darts as well I'll give, give the weekly darts cast a shout out they they do some really good stuff have a lot of good players on um, they're really good and one that people have been telling me for years to listen to maybe not years seems like ages but off menu. I don't know if everyone listens to that at all with Ed Gamble and uh, James Acaster. Um, but they have great guests on. I've only actually listened to two, so I've not really delved in. But the two I've listened to, I've listened to about five times each because they're so funny. One with Bob Mortimer and one with uh, Tim Key, who is one of my favourite comedians. Uh, if you don't follow him on Twitter, he will deliver these hilarious little poems that he writes on a seemingly daily basis about almost anything. But um, if you haven't listened to Tim Key on Off Menu, it's probably one of my favourite bits, like hour, hour and a half of chat. Uh, so that's worth uh, worth a go. And I remember doing this last year, and I'll probably I'll do it again. I'm sure no one will take heed of these recommendations, uh, but some heavy metal to listen to from the past mm-hmm. year. Uh, the new album from Conjurer called Pathos has been extremely good. Slipknot have had a new album, which has been very good. And um, kind of troublesome band because they've been in the news as bad things, but Polish band Decapitated have also produced a very good album. So there we go. That's it's laying your, you're laying your store out. You're going to call yourself Decapitated. Yeah. You, know, that's, you, you know what you're going to get, I think, with that. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, <laughs> opposites are trapped with, with, with me and you, obviously, Phil, because I'm over Dexies and Grumbleweeds, man. But that, that <laughs> I have to say, um, was very good for both of you, genuinely. I, I have to say thank you. There were some great suggestions. I'll tell, I'll tell you what, sorry, if, in terms of mainstream cinema, a truly great film this year was the Top Gun sequel, Top Gun Maverick. Oh. Now, it may depend on what you think of the first one. I didn't like the first one because I remember my sister used to watch it basically every day in our house because she was <laughs> a Tom Cruise fan. But it's absolutely brilliant, genuinely. It's thrillingly exciting. It calls back to the first one. Um the sort of moments of pathos in it, it's actually really good. So uh, if you're going to watch a film from this year that's not sort of thought of as being highbrow, that's absolutely brilliant. I must say the one that you mentioned had had caught my eye and I wanted to watch anyway, so that that was coming up for me anyway because uh, yeah, I, I also enjoy bleak. A lot of music I listen to is pretty bleak. A lot of art mm-hmm. I like that is pretty bleak, so I'm fine with that. I have no problem with Bleak either. Um, I, have, I feel like I haven't seen enough films, really. I must get... You know, I always think January, February, well, I don't think. I know, we all know that January, February is a great time in the cinema. 
just before the Oscars. So I might try and get down there. I think this is a bit of a, of a generalised thing. I, I, I've tended to think that films of <clears throat> the film world needs to up its game a little bit. That's kind of my instincts recently, because I think telly has been so extraordinary. And I have to say, there were two or three films I've watched in recent times, and I thought, I want more here, because I've just watched an amazing box set where I've got to know these people for like five years. But then, listen, I, I realised less is more as well. I, I found that quite moving, to you talking about Paul McCartney there, Dave. And I have to say, I did say this on, on Twitter. I, I, I thought beforehand, and I certainly thought during that day, because it was very late at night, wasn't it? So I was building up to it. I, I remember thinking, seeing McCartney tonight as it was that day, it's going to be about the passing of time, really. And I think that's what it was about. At its heart, I think for all of us, watching that concert that night was really quite a lot about the passing of time. And I always think one of the greatest images, and I'm going to do it now, which is pointless on an audio service, I know, is McCartney doing that little thumbs up at the end and that face appears. And I thought, God, now that's an image for the ages, really. That's a musical image, a Glastonbury image for the ages. McCartney at 80, having performed for, what was it, three hours, having, we know they had, you know, we should have maybe said he had, Incredible people he brought on, including Bruce Springsteen. I mean, you had to you had to be a pretty special performer, uh, you know, for Springsteen not to be the headline. The headline is how incredible McCartney was, but he brought on Bruce Springsteen. I mean, that was that was something else. I think as well with him, there was a great series. I'm sure it's still there on, on Disney Plus about this time last year. Get uh, Get Back, which was about the making of the Let It Be album, I think. And I mean, it, it, it's literally basically all the foot. It's about ten hours long altogether. There's three episodes, um, and at that point, the band was sort of breaking up, and I think Lennon was sort of, you know, had other things sort of to think about um, his, his marriage and, and, and maybe sort of chemical use as well. So McCartney was basically holding the band together and, and was having to come up with various songs for the album. And there's one bit of footage where he's he's basically sort of just jamming on his guitar and and. In the background, it's so prosaic. In the background, George and Ringo are sort of chatting about last night's telly, right? So you've got that going in the background. There's Paul, and suddenly, out of nowhere, the song Get Back appears, like the, the <laughs> chord spirit, and he starts to put lyrics to it. And they're, they're just chatting about it. And, and it's worth remembering, like, they're in the 20s, these guys, at this point. You know, they're just coming up with this stuff. Um, but, the, but it's that shared memory thing. You know, you, you, your grand would know that the Beatles songs. There's kids that know them. There's people as I say, around the world that know them. So yeah, it was special. I think it was special. And it probably it won't quite. I mean, Elton John, yes, fine, great legend, but it won't quite be the same. I don't think. Sorry, Phil, because I know you'd be there. <laughs> That's well, I, I, that was one of the highlights of my year. I saw Sir Elton at Watford. That was marvellous because the football links for him, Watford. But that was a, also a very moving night. I actually mm. almost lost myself a bit that night. That's what you can do, I think, with great entertainment, certainly music. Um, but I thought that was that was a, a marvellous night as well. Well, goodness me, we're not that far away from three hours. And that, we, we, this has been an absolute monster. And, and, and I think we should probably start thinking about winding it down. What, what, what do you say? Well, well, I think I'm maybe, trying to work very shortly, so we're going to have to. Yeah, maybe very briefly then, just a, a look forward to next year. Hopes and fears, <laughs> dreams, all that stuff. Predictions, whatever you want, really. I'll start. I, I, one thing I would like to see more of is... And we do see it, well, we see it with you guys with your interviews and, and your work, but in general is, and I kind of said this already, but I think I do think we need to, to do more work promoting the players as people. And part of that is to maybe not just see them in a snooker environment, 
I think more work could be done to promote them away from snooker, more relatable sort of things. Um, so a lot of, I mean, you mentioned that walk in the park we did in Leicester. The reason that happened was because I was saying to the guys from World Snooker, they did an interview, I think, with Holty, Michael Holt, at the Championship League. And it was the usual thing, go in the players' room, set the camera, he sat there in his playing gear, very static, very kind of, frankly, unimaginative. And I said, it's summer, why don't you go outside? So they did. Next day, I've been dragged into it myself, of course. I'm walking around the path right now. But even something like that is progress, I think. And I just think they're so fascinating, stupid players. They've all got backgrounds. You know, take Barry Hawkins back to his old school. Let's see, you know, see what the headmaster thought of him then sort of thing. Or David Grace does that wonderful painting, you know, do more. Mm. Whatever it is about them that you can foreground that isn't just about snooker. There's a huge audience, particularly online, who might find snooker because of something else. Um, so that's something I'd like to see happen. They do do it quite. They do do it to an extent, but I think more could be made of that. I've been quite encouraged that some, well, a couple of players in particular have sort of taken that onto their own back. With Sean, the podcaster mentioned, it's great, yeah. and as many uh, <clears throat> ventures like that should happen. Stephen Hendry's YouTube has been really, really good. Yeah. Um, I know that is very snooker focused, but. Um, to have the names that he has and his name, obviously, really well-produced YouTube stuff um, for new audiences to find. I think that's really encouraging. And uh, you get it in other sports where the players, you know, take it upon themselves to do these things. And uh, I think the more of that, the better. And it, they're two really good examples of it that have been recently emerged. Mm. Yeah, totally agree with that. And again, not we're not the only ones to do it by any means, Phil, but... I said it on our 100th episode. I, I love it when people say to me, and they do, I didn't realise this person would have that many stories or were quite that interesting. And I love to hear that. That is almost the best thing you can hear as a compliment for what we are doing or just for that, that thing. I think we all think that we could definitely make more of the players. Now, I know we all, listen, we all got a good laugh out of Rob Walker going to Yan Bing's house. house. It, it wasn't the right idea. It wasn't the right idea. They just moved in. It, 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 you know, in every sense, it didn't work, apart from to give us all a good laugh and for the Alan Partridge um, Twitter feed to get a good laugh. And I think you made a good point at the time, Dave. And actually, I meant to say this earlier with the whole alarm business. What I love about snooker is we can laugh at ourselves. Not all the time, but we, we can do that. And travelling a lot around the sporting world, I can tell you, maybe not all sports would fall into that category. But that was a probably veered into people laughing at at us a bit and that wasn't quite so good but well, it was a biz- it was it was a bizarre way to launch the masters whatever you thought of it it was a bizarre way to launch the masters <laughs> but let's say rob with david gilbert and his tractor was much more like it now that was terrific again we got some funny fun out because rob's, rob's a funny guy in many ways but you know yes let's see dave gilbert on his farm we talk about it ad nauseum let's mm. see it and, you know, that's just one example, but there's loads of things we can, we, we, you know, we can do. One other thing why it comes to mind, I think I'd like to see a few more of the younger players on tour really make progress and maybe two, maybe one or two tournament wins. Mm. But I'm conscious even now during this time, we, we've rightly been talking up Rob Milkins, the Joe Perry's, Ryan Day's great stories. But maybe we've had, you know, we've had our fill of players in their 40s giving us stories. That's great. That's marvellous. They're superstars, many of them. We love them. But maybe, um, you know, looking to the future, we could do with one, of, one or two more of those sort of breakout stars, you know, making 2023 their year, eh? 
Definitely, yeah. I mean, uh, the, the sort of memorable ones for the youngsters, you know, we remember Aaron Hill beating Ronnie O'Sullivan and Judd Trump, but they're sort of match wins, aren't they? They're not deep runs and certainly not tournament wins. So, yeah, that would certainly be uh, encouraging for the sport if you could see where the next very young stars are coming from. You know, people are saying <laughs> people in their late 20s are sort of classed as young at the minute, but they're not really, are they, compared to how they have been in the past? You know, I see some teenagers making some impact, yeah. So I'd agree with that. And one thing, uh, I'll try and do this very briefly, also you could talk it, talk about it at great length, but the um, one good thing that was brought in this year was the the 20 grand for every player guaranteed and difficult to explain exactly. <laughs> so people summed, summed it up in different ways, but it's been very well received um, in general and certainly by the players um, who it was sort of designed to help, really. I, mean, I spoke to Louis Heathcote at the time, was delighted about it. Me and Nick bumped into Peter Lyons up at the Northern and um, he was very pleased about it. And they're the kind of guys who are designed to help, who don't necessarily win loads and loads of matches over a season. Um, so I think it's sort of been one thumbs up so far, but we'll know at the end of the season how much it has been helpful. And then we can decide whether it's two thumbs up or if we want to change it a little bit. Um, but that's been very encouraging this season. But I'm just intrigued to see how it it plays out over the year, who's got what at the end of the year how it's helped people actually, and then we'll see where to go from there. But definitely a positive. Yeah, I definitely would, would, would go along with that. And actually, Phil, if we if we didn't already think it was good, you mentioned Peter Lyons. We had that, what, 10, 15 minutes with Peter. And that and that night after we played at the Northern Snooker Centre, he was absolutely passionate. He said, this is brilliant. And obviously we know about his son on tour, he, you know, many young players that go in the Northern. And he was just saying, you know, this is... <laughs> Almost bigger than anyone realises. This is really, really important. Mm-hmm. So that that was great. Well, we look ahead to the snooker year twenty twenty three. We're wrapping up twenty twenty two, and and uh, well, I suppose you know, for me, and I'm sure from us and um, Dave, we should say congratulations for your twenty five years of working <laughs> with snooker. I mean, heavens above, that is quite an effort. I mean, I I say I talk about going around the sporting world. I know I know a fair few people in long standing roles, but. You know, they're quite hard to hold down. I know you've done different things, but, you know, to keep that passion alive and to be so brilliant in all the things you've done so consistently for so long is a really excellent effort. So hats off to you. Um, Well, thank thank you. I mean, I've I've been fortunate um, that things have come along at the right time, I think. Um, Even when I started, when I went freelance, the sort of there was the internet was becoming a thing in terms of the media. Then I was able to... um, get into that and obviously the commentary came along by chance so uh, yeah here's to the next uh, here's to the next quarter of a century <laughs> I'll be like Paul McCartney by the end of it <laughs> <laughs> how shall we say goodbye then I suppose just well you know just just by just by saying what what, what a pleasure this has been Phil I've, I've loved spending time with you I was doing we're back with our review of the, of the of the year next week aren't we yeah, amazingly, we've spoken for all this time and there's plenty of stuff we haven't mentioned, really. I was looking back at my favourite tournaments over the year and I don't think we've even mentioned the Tour Championship, which I think mm-hmm. may be one of the best. So we'll save that for them, which is good, because we really have run out of time now. Uh, but no, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, I ha- I'm glad people said they enjoyed this last year and they were looking forward to this year because it's one of the highlights of the year for us as well. Um, so pleasure to be here as always and uh, nice to speak to you, Dave. Yeah, and you, and uh, Merry Christmas to everyone, for the listeners of... of- all podcasts and uh, yeah, uh, happy new year. We'll gather again uh, next year. Maybe we I should really want to join in with your traditional send off. That, that would be. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. 
I was just about to say, Dave, would you like to plug anything particularly you've got coming up? No, I mean, no doubt you, you know. The, the, the well, podcast. I don't know when the next podcast will be, actually, um, with my great planning, probably in the new year. But I, I'm doing, on the Eurosport website, I'm doing two reviews of the year over the Christmas period. One will be about Ronnie's year. One will be about the snooker year in general. So do check those out. Um, that's it, really, yeah. Well, I, wasn't, I was owing an eye whether to do this, Phil, because it's not actually nailed down. But we're not going to say specifically when, but we are hoping, aren't we, that one of the, the great figures in this sport, Ken Doherty, will join us <laughs> in the... Try stopping him. <laughs> <laughs> New Year. <laughs> so that, 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 that'll be excellent. And, uh, yeah, w- 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 of course, loads, loads of treats to come from Talking Snooker in, in the New Year, and we'll have our review of the year next week, of course. And, and David, one of the great uh, voices of, of the sport, will be back with his own Snooker Scene podcast uh, very soon and those pieces for Eurosport. Um, Dave, now, I didn't think this was an ambition of mine even, but I realise it is now. Well, could, I, could I say goodbye in the way that has become famous on the Snooker Scene podcast? Well, I think we should do it in unison, but I should explain to people, because people might not even understand understand what this is. Basically, we were at the Championship League, and Phil Yates was wrapping up the programme, and he just got caught in, I think someone was talking in his ear as well at the time, got caught between saying goodbye and saying bye-bye. So he ended up saying goodbye-bye, and for some reason, I just found it really funny. Um and now I say it at the end of every podcast. So if you, if I mean, you know, nothing says Christmas like like affiliates catchphrase, does it? So we could we could end, we could end with a with a with a unified bye bye if you like. Definitely. Uh, well, well, we'll say Merry Christmas to everybody, yeah. Happy New Year, and then maybe after one, two, three, we'll okay. give that wonderful sign off. So yeah. one, two, three, goodbye, bye, bye, bye. Brilliant. <laughs> Social Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.